AM1600KIVABQ.FM, rockoftalk.com. Glad to be here for a second straight day here in Dallas, Texas for CPAC 2022. It's an exciting time meeting some, some great people, great minds, the people who are putting together all the subject matter that you guys consume on our radio airwaves every single day. Yesterday was amazing. Today is another amazing day, and I'm joined here uh, by something that we're all talking about, uh, and this guy is the host of Crossroads. He's the senior investigative reporter. For you subscribers, you make sure you subscribe to the Epoch Times. We get a lot of show prep uh, from them. They're always on the front lines, and you must pay. Uh, you must subscribe, just like our rockoftalk.chat. And we got Joshua Phillip here in the Kiva here at CPAC 2022. He is uh, produced, put together the story on the real story of January 6th. Josh, uh, welcome into the Kiva. How are you? Hey, real pleasure being here. It's uh, our pleasure. Uh, trust us. Uh, this is not a story that's uh, got to be easy to cover. Um, it's had real impacts. Uh, we've got uh, someone uh, last week, uh, this is slipping my mind right now, but convicted for 84 months, seven years in prison. And then that's another uh, a man who just, you know, showed up to Washington, D.C. He happened to be armed. I'm a constitutional carry guy. I think that people should be, uh, you know, we love our militias. Uh, they're our last uh, sort of line of defense against uh, tyranny, really, was is what we're seeing here in this country. But uh, he's got seven years, and he's the first one. I mean, it's going to go on and on and on. But what really happened? Uh, were you on the ground? I know you've talked to people who were on the ground. What happened, uh, as they referred to it as J6? I, that bugs me, but... You know, what happened on January 6th? Well, I, I was there reporting from early morning until late night. And so I was actually there probably like 4, 5 a.m. Uh, waiting to get into the ellipse with the press where Trump spoke. And I think like everybody else, we didn't think anything was happening at the Capitol building. Uh, little did we know is that while Trump was still speaking, a group of people was already breaching the Capitol. And these individuals, uh, really, the FBI seems to have little or no interest in them. Right. And, and this is where the story gets really crazy. The people who committed the actual crimes on January 6th, who did everything that the New York Times and the January 6th committee are accusing everybody of doing, the FBI and most of the government and even most of the media seems to have no interest in them. Right. And so why do they not have interest in the people who were breaching the Capitol? People like Ray Epps and all the people around him, these yeah. estimated 100, uh, around 100, suspicious actors and material witnesses. Why do they not care about that? And by the way, do we have names for all of the 100 people? or We, we, we don't, although some of it is coming out. Okay. Um, some of the lawyers have been putting documents together detailing some of these individuals. And, and for yeah. our audience, uh, describe Ray Epps uh, uh, to our audience. He's probably uh, the most talked about and the most curious member. As uh, <laughs> you call us, the lead instigator. And there's there's a reason why people care about him so much. It's because he's on video the day before the breach of the Capitol, telling people we need to go into the building, and he's repeating this, and the crowd starts chanting "Fed" because they think he's a Fed for saying that. They don't support him. Ray Epps, on video, was leading people in the breach of the Capitol. 
on video, he's with the group who are pulling down the police barricades in a very systematic and coordinating looking way, removing the police barricades, removing the signs saying do not enter, and then while well, a second, while well, a third group, because there's two groups coordinating on that, a third group goes inside the Capitol and then opens the door from the inside. Ray Epps was one of those individuals, and he's the one who, ironically, most conservatives want to see investigated, but who the federal agencies don't seem to be interested in. There's in fact, a very interesting reason why, because I think he's been listed as? Well, people believe that he might, uh, in fact, be a federal agent, although that's, okay. that's, that's not for sure, of course. So you're doing the investigative reporter for... What I now believe is probably the most tr trusted uh, conservative publication, Epoch Times. And let's step away from J6, as they call it, January 6th, uh, here with Josh Phillip, the real story of January 6th. Tell us about how you got started with Epoch Times. Let's go back there. So I've been with Epic Times since 2006. And at the time, I was still just a student um, and basically, you know, journalism school, just community college, nothing special. Just sending in articles here and there. And then 2008, I got on for a summer internship. Uh, I lived in San Diego. Internship was in New York. So I said, hey, why not? I had nothing to go on this summer anyways. I go to New York, and I accidentally uncover one of the Chinese Communist Party's largest spy operations in the United States, uh, which is the United Front Work Department, which branch of the Chinese Communist Party, United Front Work Department, working hand-in-hand -hand with the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office on the government side, with the general political department on the military side, doing what they call liaison work. And what they're doing is, is they go through the Chinese consulates, and they use the Chinese consulates almost like a foreign, like a, like a foreign base, like a foreign government branch. And from there, they reach out to doing what they call liaison work, uh, reaching out to the different tongs. Tongs are like the guilds or fraternal organizations that work as the unofficial governing bodies of Chinese communities. Underneath the Tongs is the Chinese Mafia. And what the CCP does is it goes to these organizations, gets them to switch their allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party, and then controls tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of individuals that they can use for espionage. Wow. So they'll invite uh, you know, American political candidates or people in office to go on trips to China, they'll wine, dine them, and try to you know, get them caught in honey traps, like sex traps, right. or subvert them. Right. They do the same thing to wealthy investors, IT workers, businessmen, journalists, you name it. Anybody of any degree of influence in a country, they will target like this and try to compromise. Wow. That is uh, quite the start. So you stumbled upon that, and it turned into a career 14 years later where you're telling the story on how to incriminate a president. And the real story of January 6th and Epoch Times, or as the way you describe it, yeah, Epic. Is that the better way to say Epic Times documentary? Um, is that, that the correct way to well, say it? Well, if you're British, it's Epoch. If you're American, it's epic. Well, okay, I mean, it, 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 it sounds more sophisticated. It's, it's, it's like the fine wine, so you're saying. You know. uh, by the way, uh, folks, this is uh, now streaming on Epoch TV, uh, epochtv.com, the real story of January 6th. Okay, so we, we, we left, uh, checked in with apps, and they, we might believe to be uh, FBI informant working for the FBI. Is there a well, hot we, trail we should be there? Clear that's, 
what people suspect. We suspect. do not have evidence of that. People but we have conservative it. talkers who are telling us all the time that he's an FBI informant or he worked for the FBI. And you've done the real investigative reporting. And I haven't talked much about it, to be quite honest. I just haven't paid that much attention. I don't like, I think, the way that it sort of gears towards uh, 45 President Donald J. Trump. I certainly don't appreciate a lot of the other things that are sort of on the periphery of that. But, you know, by and large, I think, you know, somebody who doesn't believe in, uh, in that it was a, a fair election, the outcome, uh, I certainly wouldn't have been advocating, nor would anybody else be advocating for what actually happened. And it seems like the real instigators were not people on our, on our side. And I think that that's maybe part of the story of the real story of January 6th. Absolutely. So the documentary, we don't just look at that. We also look at police use of force. We look at the four deaths that day. Okay. Uh, we look at there, people. Was there a total of six, though, in all, right? Now, that, that, that is a lie that's even being reported by the judges. Really? Yes. Four people died that day. They, they claim that two police officers died. That is an absolute lie. Wow. Yeah. So, and this is documented. I'm, not, I'm just making this up. So, they say Officer Sicknick was killed. They claim yeah. police people. They, they claim people beat him. The original stories of people beat him to death with like a fire extinguisher. That's a lie. Uh, Officer Sicknick died the following day of a heart attack, right. and the D.C. coroner has ruled it a natural death. And so the judges are even repeating this, uh, claiming that he was killed by the protesters. And then I don't know who even the sixth person was. That's also a total lie. Wow. But. Four people did die that day, and we have video. Everyone knows, I think people know about Ashley Babbitt. She yes, climbed through the window. Yes. She was shot by Officer Bird. We watched the video, and uh, as I oftentimes comment on our air, she was murdered. But people don't know about the other three people who died. Uh, and we have video evidence suggesting that actually they may have been killed by police. So one of these individuals is Roseanne Boylan, who was, uh, she died in the tunnel leading into the Capitol. The other two died of heart attacks, or, you know, I think one was a stroke. Now, let's start with the, the heart attacks first. So what happened with these? Police were randomly throwing munitions into the crowd. We have uh, body cam footage of one of the officers, not something that's, a, I don't think, even publicly available. Body cam footage, he's running around like a maniac, checking police, like he's like starting a mosh pit, checking other police, grabbing munitions off, their, off of them. He's grabbing uh, taser cartridges. He's walking up to random Trump supporters, shooting them with tasers, dropping them, not arresting them. He's just doing this just... To, like what looks like malicious intent, just instigating the crowd. He's grabbing these explosives, pulling the pins, like right away, lobbing them to the crowd, grabbing more munitions off other officers. The guy's acting like a total maniac. These things go off and they, they explode. And they, they shoot up these plastic uh, munitions and they can kill you. And sure enough, two of the, indivi the two individuals had heart attacks were struck by these and fell to the ground. We don't know if that one officer threw them, but uh, some officer did, fell to the ground with the blast and then died. And then they ruled the, the coroner ruled these natural deaths. He said it was heart attacks. So take it for what you will. Uh, just taking it for your word. And as the uh, lead investigative reporter, the senior investigative reporter there for Epoch Times and the real story of January 6th, just hearing that, uh, I will go and watch this tonight uh, and get more of the information on it. Is there video coverage of this? Or as you said, it's not. We, we have public? the actual footage. 
Wow. Yeah, we, we managed to get the footage. The other individual who died was Roseanne Boylan. Roseanne Boylan, get this. So she was a protester at one of the entrances. Where you, I think a lot of the footage people see is people fighting with police at this You're entrance right. to the building. Yeah. Or the moving, or the tunnels, or the climbing. Well, well there's, there's, there's three things people see. So one, you look at the actual people raiding the Capitol. That was the suspicious actors mostly. Okay. And those are the people who police don't have any interest in or have little interest in. The other... People who entered the building were people at the tunnel who were just fighting with police. The other ones are those who just, the police opened the doors and were literally waving them in and escorting them into the building, many of whom are being charged like with like 20 years in prison now. Right. Now that fighting at the door, there, this is, this, the story of that is totally different from what people are being told. That's where Roseanne Boylan died. What happened was this, we have, and we actually have all the footage showing this throughout the entire thing. Police deployed tear gas. Now, that in and of itself is a violation of use of force. Because when you, when you deploy tear gas in an enclosed area, it sucks out the oxygen. You can kill people. They do that. They suck out the oxygen. And what happens? Why don't you do it? It's because people panic and people flee. And then they start trampling each other. And then people die. And that's what happened to Roseanne Boylan. People, the police deploy the tear gas. People start freaking out. They run. They, she gets trampled. She falls. People are falling on top of her. P people in, out, outside the tunnel are like, you know, horrified. They're begging police to save this woman's life. There's one person holding her hand and holds her hand as she loses consciousness. The, the police start beating the people in the head with batons. The people who are trying to help Roseanne. Try, trying to help her, yeah. One of the guys bleeding because police are hitting him, and he's still begging the police, please save this woman's life. And you can hear him on camera begging them. What do the police do? Roseanne Boylan loses consciousness. They're watching this woman die. Then one of the police officers grabs a metal or a wooden stick, it wasn't even a baton, and starts beating this woman, Roseanne Boylan, in the head, on the ground or on the side, beating her while she's unconscious. And people are watching this and they're freaking out. They're saying, you, you know, what are you doing? And that's the video footage you watch. Is people are trying to save this woman's life while the police beat her unconscious body. That's the real context of what happened there. That's a lot for you guys to take. Uh, it's too much for me to envision. Uh, obviously, radio is theater of the mind. Um, yeah. You know, having met you here just for a very short time, uh, Joshua Phillip, I know that you're not an emotional guy, um, but the conveyance of the emotion just by you, your description of what has happened, I think is enough to uh, anger every person and want to make them do something about it. And we, of course, don't advocate for anything, but I think that uh, just makes us all angry to our very core. A um, couple of questions uh, without giving too much away because I'm sure you probably get into the middle of this, but yeah. do we know if the, the police officers were these the Capitol Police who were beating her? Uh, that was DC Metro, okay. I believe. In their training manuals, and I'm almost kind of publicly litigating, I'm more just kind of curious from the question, um, is there ever a time where they have uh, been trained on how, in their manuals, how to use tear gas? So and we actually... We actually brought on the documentary a man named Stan Keffart. Stan Keffart okay. is the number one expert on police use of force. Okay. So if you want, if you're in a trial and you need someone to testify on police use of force, he's the guy. He's listed as the number one expert. He's okay. the top guy, and in his assessment, that was assault. That was assault under color of authority with intention to intention to cause grievous bodily harm. The police officer did that committed a crime. He also says the shooting of Ashley Babbitt, based on our video right. analysis, was a murder. Yeah, murder. I say and murder he, all the 
uh, we show multiple instances of police use of force. And he's saying not only did the police doing it commit crimes that frankly should be prosecuted for it, but even the bystander police officers should face charges. Similar to officer, you know, the officer who kneeled on George Floyd's neck. It wasn't just him charged. It's the officers around him because it didn't stop him. Right. Same thing on January 6th. Not only did they have officers who committed serious crimes, murder possibly, uh, assault to, with intent to cause egregious bodily harm, assault under color of authority. Not only did he have even that, but even possible entrapment, but you had officers standing by watching and letting this happen, and all of them should be charged for this. I really like the word shall. Uh, the government likes the word shall. They put it in there. Uh, you say should be uh, under expert testimony. Number one uh, expert testimony they brought in. Uh, we now have the documents. Does your... Does Epic, Epic Times documentary, does your uh, documentary, which shows you know visibly what's happening to the people who suffered uh, on that day, um, the, the ultimate uh, sacrifice, does it have teeth for someone to pick it up from that point and possibly do something with it? Or is this story cooked, done, don't try to fight back? And, and, you're, and you're a journalist. I'm just wondering, when you're providing that type of, of information... Does it perhaps uh, ignite uh, an attorney? Does it ignite some, I, some I th issues? I think if people watch it, they'll find that everything we show is grounded in video evidence. Okay. And it's, a, it's essentially analysis based on video evidence. And so yeah. we, we ground everything we say in visible video evidence. And we don't deviate from anything that we could prove in a court of law. Well, um, That said, of course... You know, I think it's, you'll find it's a very level-headed analysis. I think everyone we have in it's very calm and very yeah. rational. We, and need, so, we need that nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> the, the country's completely divided and totally crazy. So yeah. I can tell you I appreciate that more than anything. It's hard, for, hard enough for us to, like, get the story, much less talk to the other side. Yeah, but we also show a lot of what could be considered exculpatory evidence. Okay. Evidence that could prove the innocence of a lot of people. Okay. Uh, including, actually, the Oath Keepers. We have video evidence showing their innocence on, on some pretty serious stuff. Wow. This is serious work. Uh, you've got to be proud of it. And I think that people uh, feel like that they don't have a voice. Uh, the, the, we saw what happened uh, yesterday with uh, Alex Jones. Oh, crazy, um, yeah. We've seen what's happened with other people who have uh, spoken up, uh, certainly our own Coy Griffith in, in the state of New Mexico, what's happened to him. I mean, there is a, a real attempt to politically slime and uh, use J6, as they call it, uh, or any of this stuff uh, against them. Um, tell us about, um, very quickly, for everybody who, uh, who hasn't downloaded the app or downloaded... Uh, tell us about you know your media consumption habits, if you will, from Epoch Times. What do you what do you go to? What do you like to get up in the morning or or read while you're working out or or what what, what do you think is useful about Epoch Times? We want to get some new subscribers. Well, with so your, the Epoch Times, we we're really trying to do what we call traditional journalism. Okay. <clears throat> where the purpose of news is merely to give people an accurate understanding of what's happening in the world. That and also being the watchdog of the, for the American people. People expect us to make sure that government is working like it should, yes. that they're living up to their promises, that laws are being followed. And if they're violating these things, then we need to tell people they're being violated. So anytime there's a major incident, we look into it personally. Uh, we were some of the reporters who broke the stories on, for example, uh, the origins of COVID. In fact, I did one yeah. of the definitive documentaries we, we on that. that a lot. Yeah. Uh, we talked a lot about election fraud. In fact, we also did a lot of really substantial reporting on this. We, we broke some of the major stories around Spygate 
In fact, I think we were leading the reporting for a long time. And so we, we tend to be kind of on the front lines of looking into things ourselves and not following what they, I think most people take as the established narrative of what we're told things should be. We don't believe in following what other media say it is. We look into it personally. Josh, it's been a real pleasure meeting you. I know our, our paths are going to cross again. Uh, uh, folks, we want to get everybody subscribed to the Epoch Times, epochtv.com, and uh, the real story of January 6th. I'm going to watch it uh, tonight. Uh, I've got to take a deep breath. I probably need to work out a little bit, making sure I get some of those uh, uh, bad feelings out before I have to sort of indulge on this. Uh, this is not light reading or light film making and certainly not uh, 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 something that is going to make people feel good, but it is always helpful and it always makes people feel good to actually know the truth. Joshua, thank you so much for your time. Hey, real pleasure being here. Thank Back you. Back after a quick break here in the Kiva on AM600 KIVA, abq.fm, rockoftalk.com. AM1600 KIVABQ.FM, rockoftalk.com. I'm Eddie Eric on the Rock of Talk here, enjoying a wonderful Friday afternoon here at CPAC Dallas 2022, who's who of conservatives uh, here. And I'm here with Jack Calabertinos, and uh, he was involved with the Trump administration, the administration of healthcare policy, when we used to have, you know, healthcare policy, not edicts. And uh, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, you want to learn a little something about this? I said, You know what? This is exactly exactly what we have all wanted to know more about because socialized medicine is alive and well in the state of New Mexico, Jack. And uh, you're going to help explain that to us, HHS. And you've also just got written up inside, uh, not not because you did anything bad, but uh, inside <laughs> sources. Uh, Jack, welcome into the Kiva. How are you? Thank you so much, Eddie. I really appreciate you giving me this chance. I'm glad I tapped you on the shoulder. Yeah, no, I think it's important. I think this is something that, uh, you know, we're just paying attention to too many things that are just... Shouldn't be a priority, but they are. I mean, we're talking about pronouns and everything else. This is actually, you know, meat and potatoes, something that people, it happens to them in their everyday life. They want to know why their pharmaceuticals are so incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, recently we just had our twice now infected president. I don't want to get into the COVID stuff, but, you know, $500 a dose of Paxlovid, you know, this, this is a real cost that people can't afford these yes. things. Regardless of whether or not it works, we're not even talking about that just the amount of what it costs and why does it cost so much jack yeah let's start with that and then we can talk about the reconciliation bill that everyone's talking about a mansion's deal yeah but um one reason why is that a brand new drug has almost a decade worth of innovation research and development it okay. takes almost a billion dollars to produce a brand new drug and once it loses its exclusivity, it goes to generic, price goes down. We all take 80% of our prescription drugs are, are generic, right. but those others are so high. And we dug into it at HHS because actually President Trump is like, look, the other guys are right. Drugs are too high. It's not a Republican thing to say to right. talk about high drug prices, but he did. So one thing that HHS policy people told him, Secretary Azar and others, is that there are middlemen. There's an unknown sort of 
lack of competition that occurs in the drug pricing process that people and institutions like pharmacy benefit managers, otherwise known as middlemen, have a vested interest in keeping the prices high. And then rebates are given to insurance companies, to employers and others. So actually, pharmaceutical companies don't like that. They know that prices can be lower, even if they're most innovative drugs, if just we reform that. So the Trump administration had a rule that, you know, the American people knew nothing about. People of New Mexico didn't know about it. Florida, no, no one really knew, but it was a way to reform this murky middleman process. In this reconciliation bill that the Democrats and the Biden administration are in favor of, it has a provision to get rid of that. So, post-Trump, I guess the pharmaceutical prices are going back up as part of this deal? Exactly. And that's one of the things that is such a misnomer when they talk about inflation fighting. There are things that are in here, like, quote unquote, Medicare negotiation. The Democrats have been pushing for 10 years. It's not inflation fighting. They've just sort of put that tagline and that headline on a bunch of stuff that they've been pushing for for years. Well, I got to tell you, we've been surprised by some of the other items in there. You know, 87,000 new IRS agents coming after uh, making sure there's more forensic discovery, digital discovery. And then, you know, those are obviously very important points to increase uh, revenue, but to go ahead and pull all the fail-safes off on pricing for a bigger charge on a middle class and an upper middle class that's already suffered through COVID and then asking them to pay for something that only one or two priors is going to uh, provide for them and unleashing the beast on our pocketbook. Wait, inflation isn't that bad. I mean, this is a, really a compounding of a problem that's happened uh, at, at maybe the worst possible time because one of the things that hasn't been factored into these inflation prices is uh, pharmaceuticals. So, you know, this worries me uh, for someone who you know has, has older parents and and someone who's thinking about you know healthcare into my future as I you know go into my fifties. I mean, this is going to be something that's going to be uh, increasingly more expensive. So they're sneaking something else in on us, Jack. They're sneaking it in. And we haven't even talked about this yet. So by creating price controls on certain drugs and Medicare, that sounds like something that people would maybe like. Some nonpartisan, non-conservatives might like, okay, put that. It's a horrendous idea because then now what it means is if those companies don't drop their prices down, and they're just going to walk away. So the drugs on the menu that our own parents and grandparents can go ahead and use um, aren't going to be there because companies are going to make economic choices. So it really is a problem to like look at 70 style price controls and say that's right for now because it's actually a horrendous thing in terms of innovation and access for patients. That's a harder thing to communicate. I heard you saying that earlier that kind of like, the good guys, it's hard for us to communicate sometimes because it's the left will often just demonize and demagogue and throw some words and sort of convince people that are have real jobs and aren't really looking at policy as closely as some of us are. You know, well, one of the things that happened during Obamacare is certain people paid and other people didn't. It didn't change the overall body 
bottom line for the companies that were developing, innovating, or providing. Uh, and I think what's really curious about all that is somebody has to pay for it at some time. Otherwise, we all incur the cost. And as you know, communism is shared socialism, is shared misery. And I think exactly. uh, you, know, you can sort of shine the light a little bit on this in terms of it involving those market forces and competition. You know, it's staggering that it takes a billion dollars to get something to market after FDA approval, not to mention the amount of time, the factor of all that. So help us understand healthcare, its costs. And uh, obviously, you were also probably uh, involved in healthcare time the Obamacare was around. What yeah. did that do to this country? Uh, I think we only need to look to our past to realize what our future is going to look like once, you know, this mansion bill goes through. So let's talk about Obamacare for a second. You know, so I joined the Trump administration January 20th. So on the day of the inaugural 2017, he wanted his brand new fresh appointees to be at their desks, get their badges and get to work. No president actually had never done that before. Yeah. Uh, even some of our favorites, you know, always like, gave their appointees at least a day before they came in. in. relax, have a good time, yeah. you know, celebrate. <laughs> and one thing we learned was, um, even though repeal of Obamacare was going to be our top issue, and it was, mm-hmm. but it went south, and we remember the late Senator McCain, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, they, voting it voting it down. Yeah. Um, I, I literally have watched that video 10 times, and I saw Elizabeth Warren with her arms crossed right there. It's like, you better vote. And we saw him do that. And, you know, it's something that's etched in my memory. At that moment, I think the realists among us knew it was going to be around for a while. So the Trump administration tried every way it could to try to find ways to ease the pain, to kill the individual mandate, to allow short term, less expensive insurance which this Biden administration hates because they want us all in like this monolithic thing and they want to rebuild Obamacare to where it was. So in this reconciliation bill that the media falsely calls skinny um, is a way to expand Obamacare. Oh, wow. That people's subsidies, if they were at a certain income level, were going to be expiring. And they knew that would be a political hit among a lot of their base. So embedded in there, which Senator Manchin is now voting for, is an expansion and a continuation of Obamacare. That if we had had a Republican in office, we would not have uh, approved that. You're the first person to talk about this. And I read, I don't know, probably 80 or 90 websites a day where I go and I look at all the headlines and I find, you know, 20 to 30 stories that I'm going to sort of target. And I have seen nothing on this. And we're going to get to HHS uh, in a moment, uh, which, of course, is socialized medicine. But inside sources, uh, sources printed uh, you up. And tell me about the article that you got printed up on uh, today and as it relates to healthcare and this very issue. Thank you. I really appreciate that blog. I mean, it came out today. The headline is Democrats Government Spending Dream requires socialist price controls. So one thing I want to draw your attention to in here is, and I'm sure you haven't seen this because no one has, is that a Vermont congressman, little Vermont, Peter Welch, I don't even know Peter Welch, he revealed the Democrats' true intent pretty directly. He said the quiet part out loud. He said, Quote, don't underestimate the power of the slippery slope. They know if we get price negotiation, it's the beginning, it's not the end. And they're 
talking the we, they're talking about industry. They're talking about innovators. They're talking about those of us who care about sort of the innovation ecosystem. Um, and it's not negotiation because the government's got a gun at the head of the of the pharmaceutical companies. So we talk about the slippery slope, how this could really lead to sort of the socialized medicine they've got in Canada and in Europe. But this one congressman from close to Canada in Vermont is actually admitting it. Yeah, and literally putting the uh, additional hair that will tip everything over. And I think that's what he's talking about, this uh, slippery yes. slope where we're not going to be coming back from. Uh, hard to believe that they're mustering this courage, and it must make them feel good that Joe Manchin is jumping on board because he has been uh, sort of the last piece of the puzzle for them sort of keeping any level of sanity uh, in our, our government. But, you know, I think this uh, move that he's making, and I'm sorry to speak out of policy and into politics, has more to do with 2024, the fact that the Democrats don't really have somebody that's logical. You know, what are you going to go with Michelle Obama and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? You know, we know where Nancy Pelosi is at 82 years of age. We know uh, Kamala Harris. She couldn't debate. Well, we'll save that for another day. We know that Joe Biden. She'll laugh a lot, though, during the (laughs) debate. She will laugh a lot. I think we're sort of going into this this time where he is finding an opportunity and he's taking it by a little bit of marking on the green energy. But, I mean, the evil is implicit in what exactly you're talking about. That's going to hit every single person because the one policy issue that we've all been focused on, regardless of whether or not we're saying it, has been healthcare, hence COVID. So let's get into socialized medicine. We know it all too well in the state of New Mexico. Socialized medicine looks like HHS. It looks like the uh, healthcare that they receive on the uh, Native American reservations. Uh, we have 23 different tribes in our state. So um, we know it doesn't look good. And the people who travel to 250 miles to get the care at a, um, you know, tier three or whatever, a, a trauma one level center or anything like that, uh, it hasn't bode well for them. They have some of the highest uh, uh, alcoholism rates. Uh, they don't do blood transfusions. We've got all sorts of, I mean, I could talk all day about this type of thing, but tell us about what socialized healthcare will look like on steroids if this passes and cinema decides to go with it and what that looks like uh, for us nationally. Because she is the linchpin. That's it. We, you know, yeah. and the fact that Senator Manchin was kind of our hero for standing up, he never actually said, I will never vote for this in any form. So it does make you wonder whether he was just waiting for the right deal. Yeah, I think and so. it's funny how West sense. Virginia always gets joked about with the former Senator Byrd of mm-hmm. getting deals and getting right. money poured into West Virginia, government buildings and bridges and roads. So I think when we really dig into a lot of this green stuff, we're yeah. going to find a lot of advantages for West Virginia. Virginia that maybe he was holding out for until he got the deal he was looking for. Yeah, political and politics timing is everything like anything else. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's let's talk about your um, socialized medicine and, and the Native American community. And I don't know as much about it as you, let's say, or some of your, you know, uh, healthcare leaders in, in your action. state. Yeah, to be to be quite honest, we just happen to see it in action. That's, yeah. that's all it is. I have seen it in a different way because I've served at USHHS under President Bush okay. and President Trump. And I didn't realize at the time when I first went in that, a, that the federal government 
has the primary healthcare responsibility with the states sharing that responsibility yeah. for over 500 federally recognized tribes. So I've been to Indian country. We've had these consultation meetings where we meet with various tribal stakeholders. We had one at the end of the Trump administration in Alaska. We went to villages where there were no roads and we, our deputy secretary and I in a small group, you know, we're on these float planes going to these. And if you really want to see an example of what happens when the federal government completely runs your health care, it it's the Indian Health Service. There are a lot of very worthwhile people, doctors that have given up being able to make a lot more money by being physicians and nurses in the Indian health care. So I'm not criticizing them. Sure. Um, well, they're but just it trying is, to work and to provide for a community that they say needs help. They don't understand the you know intricacies from 30,000 feet. It's sad and it's so pitiful what you see in terms of the outcomes, some of which you've already oh, yeah. mentioned. Now, there's a little known thing that tribes can do if they've got the funding, they got the wherewithal, which is take the funding and create their own healthcare systems like the Chickasaw Nation, for instance, yeah, in Oklahoma. Right. And it is very advanced. It is very good healthcare. Yeah. And it kind of goes to show you what the private sector can do when you get that boost of funding because you're on tribal lands without the same kind of economy, but then you bypass the federal government mm -hmm. and you create a local solution having like metashare which yeah. we talk about all the time when people come together and they're like well you're not using it i'll use it and uh, that, that's kind of a, a shared uh, vision and uh, shared costs and you know everyone pulling for each other's health so yeah i hate to plug that but that's kind of what we more or less do so uh uh Healthcare system under HHS, not as successful. You've been operating within uh, both the Bush and the Trump administration. What does it look like going into 2024? And are you helpful? I know that uh, the election game is not what you focus on. You focus on mm -hmm. execution once uh, everything's in. But we're looking to win this so we can hire you back uh, to work on policy <laughs> that's sound and meaningful, that works for all people. Because ultimately, at the end, it's not about Republicans and Democrats. Good government works for every man out there. Yeah, yes, exactly. And I think that, and I know for a fact that congressional leaders, some of whom are coming here at CPAC and speaking and uh, interacting with Chairman Matt Schlapp all the time, they are already, without you know, counting their chickens and knocking on wood, they are laying out a game plan to create accountability, to haul some of these Biden officials that are running HHS to Congress. That helps to put a sort of dampening of their regulatory agenda. There's okay. going to be new budget restraints with a Republican majority and, frankly, laying the groundwork for policies with a Republican president, which you're not going to get through yep. with a Republican Congress and Biden, is basically finding a way to create accountability um, and also possibly look at their funding in order to keep them from doing some of the most radical things. Let me give you one quick example. One of the best people in the Trump administration's HHS was Admiral Brett Girard. Okay. He was a top physician from here in the great state of Texas. He dedicated his life to being a physician, public health. He believes in the free market. He's a conservative. And he was the choice to become the Assistant Secretary of Health. Under him is the entire public health service, the doctors that 
run the Indian health clinics, but he was also put in charge of the testing debacle and fixing it uh, during the beginning of COVID. He's a very well-regarded person. Who does the Biden administration choose to replace him? The transgender doctor from Pennsylvania who uh, has said almost nothing about COVID, said nothing about the mental health impact for our kids and the substance abuse issues. You have the bully pulpit when you're in that position of an assistant secretary. And what is he, she more uh, caring more about to talk about? It's about children and transgender surgeries and using all kinds of euphemisms to say that that should be a right of a child to have that. So I just sort of say shame on the current HHS for focusing on that kind of radical agenda as opposed to what should be their primary agenda, you know, which is helping to create a great healthcare ecosystem for people, take care of Native American community and create kind of private sector solutions that can help them have a better, you know, way of life and looking for solutions on drug pricing that doesn't demonize innovators. Zach, I can see why uh, Donald Trump hired you to bring measures. I think you're very uh, smart and astute about how you look and handle things. But uh, the last issue that you mentioned, uh, as you uh, didn't state, but I get, is that it has nothing to do with health care. And there's a real opportunity for us to go ahead and put that execution back into the White House. So obviously, uh, you're not a man who wears his heart on his sleeve, but uh, this is obviously an important issue you know, for our country because without health care and without our health, we're really nothing. So I want to thank you for taking the time for being here. Thanks for educating all of us on this. It's something that isn't the sexiest thing to talk about, but boy, um, this is the most important thing. We got to get back to it. So uh, Jack, I really appreciate you being here. How can people uh, see your uh, write-up on Inside Sources? What's the title of the article? Yep. If they just go on to InsideSources.com and look up Democrats' government spending dream requires socialist price controls. I also am on Twitter, jcal1985. Uh, and I really, really appreciate it, Eddie. Absolutely, Jack. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for being here. Back after a quick break here in the Kiva. Your mind just expanded, and hopefully your heart will as well as we get uh, more of these great conservatives here at CPAC 22 in Dallas, Texas. AM 1600 KIV, ABQ.FM, here from CPAC in Dallas. And we continue to run into amazing stories and amazing people who need to tell their story and stories that you have already heard, ladies and gentlemen, but you get your memory refreshed because we know that news cycle likes to clear out that memory and make you forget uh, those important stories that are so important to, I don't know, when you're gathering around the dinner table or meeting with people, you know, whatever you do. And one such person who came by Radio Row, and she uh, came all the way from Fairfax County, Virginia, Stephanie Lundquist Aurora, and she's the mom of three boys. She has been on Hannity, and uh, she has been telling her friend, her uh, story on Fox and Friends, and I'm really glad to have her here because these this is ground zero for the school board fight that I think ultimately led to Youngkin's victory. There was so much of that that ultimately played up. And if you think that your school board 
Does it matter? Well, just ask Stephanie and the impact that uh, she has had. And she's running for school board again out in Fairfax County. Stephanie, welcome into the Kiva. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Eddie. This is an important uh, thing because I think you could really motivate people back in New Mexico. You were amazed when I told you about what New Mexico is like. Like, we didn't go back to school until February of this year. I think you're the only place that was out longer than we are. Were. We were out for a year and a half. I homeschooled my kids during that time because I felt like they weren't learning anything on the computer. Khan Academy wasn't enough? You mean your kids actually had to get involved with, uh, you know, socializing? It, the, the, all the metrics have been out there. You're a mom of a 10, 11, 11, 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. And I think, you know, putting yourself out there then for school board and then fighting on behalf of your kids and getting that out there, um, they need to be back in the classroom. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. And when when they finally did get back to the classroom, um they instituted a mask mandate, and my children, um, they got headaches from masks and stuff like that. But um, but then Governor Youngkin of Virginia passed Executive Order 2. Right. Which was, I think that, it was his first thing that he yes, did, right? on day one. Okay. Yep. And so it was actually implemented on January 25th. So um, when that was implemented, we had the audacity to exercise our rights to not wear a mask because that was the state law at that time. But the week before that went into effect, um, Fairfax County and its fiefdom decided that they were going to circumvent the state law and say, actually, now masks are part of the dress code, um, which wow. I find infuriating. Masks are being part of the new dress code. They wow. amended it. Um, they amended it to say that it was now part of the dress code. So then um, they made it a level three infraction on par with bullying, discriminatory harassment, and drug possession. So if you violate if that. you violated that. Wow. Even though you were allowed to do that. So you've gone law. chapter and verse through this, and the devil is always in the details. Oh, it is. And the funny thing is they weren't enforcing any other part of the dress code, like uh, studded necklaces, beanies in school. Nobody was even mentioning those. They were. They certainly weren't getting suspended for them. So my three sons were suspended for, my oldest one was suspended for a total of nine days. Um, and my younger one's a little bit, um, a little bit longer than that for um, different reasons. Um, regarding the mask policy. My, sure. my older son wanted to take a math test and get back to school, so he ended up eventually complying. But um, my younger ones kept going. It was 15 days. But eventually what happened is uh, a judge put a stay on the order so that it was no longer in effect for a while because that's how Fairfax County operates um, anyways. And my sons actually, for temporarily, while they had to, they put their masks back on. So we filed a lawsuit against this whole thing, and we were like, this is ridiculous. We were exercising our rights by not wearing masks. You can't do this. Like, this is wrong. So we, we sued. Um, you sued. So you hired an attorney. Yeah, uh, this is This is post uh, after your children had already been impacted uh, via the law of yeah. the uh, school board uh, right. that had passed this stuff down. And how did that go? How? Well, where where do we where do you go from there in terms of litigation? Well, yeah. So we filed that lawsuit, and I don't believe in a litigious society. I think we right. do it, but we filed a lawsuit because I think it's completely unjust, and somebody needs to put these people in their place. Right. Um, and of, and not surprising in Fairfax County, um, the judge granted the other sides. Um, uh, 
request to dismiss our lawsuit. So it was effectively dismissed. So my sons had these suspensions still sitting on their record. Um, and recently, I um, appealed at the school level to um, Irving Middle School, Hunt Valley Elementary School, because um, my children were only in third, fifth, and seventh grade. And I said, hey, this is, this is crazy because this can affect their opportunities in the future. Please expunge their records. They were exercising civil disobedience, so please, you know, please expunge their records. This is and, obscene. And, and what and, happened? Well, the principal said, um, according to this, um, according to this manual, you need to submit um, the reason that it is either inaccurate, misleading, or a violation of their rights, according to the manual. So I submitted a document in the appeal where I made the case that it was misleading because nine days of suspension or 15 makes it look like they were like basically right. carrying heroin to school or something. Right, or getting in a fight, bullying, yes. beating people up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. terrible things. And they generally try to avoid suspending people in Fairfax County, even for things that kids probably should be suspended. But they for, went out things. of their way to suspend them. Uh, were they the only children that were suspended, or did they... There were a total of 25 children suspended, and they made the punishments so draconian that people, even though they disagreed with what Fairfax County was doing, they didn't want to stand against them because suspension is a big deal on your children's records. Yeah. You make the punishments so draconian that people won't stand up. And I Oh, even worse, I think even more than that, and I apologize for interrupting, but even worse, the impact on your children, their psyche as they're developing, feeling that they did something wrong when indeed they did nothing but just stand up for themselves and say, hey, I don't want to wear a mask. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, how did that impact them emotionally, mentally? How did that, you know, they're probably just great kids. They love their mom and, you know, they, 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 and they love, that's beautiful. I remember those days uh, just growing up that that's never going to leave them, especially with having a mom like you. But l l let me ask you, they probably were thinking, hey, mom, are you okay? I mean, they were probably looking out for you. They were a little bit worried about me. They saw me go through quite a, a few things emotionally. Um, yeah. And I was worried. I'm like, am I doing the right thing for them? But this this is the right thing. So being civilly disobedient is your duty as a yeah, citizen. Absolutely. This is everyone's duty right. to stand up against things which are wrong. Um, my sons, I they're just strong and tenacious. And um, and I I mean, of course, I'm biased, so I would think that. No, they I'm, are. I just saw a wonderful picture of you and your beautiful family. That yeah, they are. Thank you. Um, so they were actually, they were not um, emotionally impacted a great deal. And they okay. learned... I think the most important thing that happened is that they got just a hands-on education in civics. Wow. How else would you get that kind of education yeah. aside from... I can't wait till they run for senator, maybe even president one day. I think that would be awesome. So. Well, now, Eddie, let me tell you, I'm, I'm a little bit personally, and I'm doing everything I can to fight this, getting the state of Virginia involved. Um, I'm a little bit worried about their future academic pursuits because with these okay. suspensions on their record, I just wonder, I kind of feel like David fighting Goliath. And, sure. I, and I just wonder, like, what? how will this impact them in the event that I can't get these suspensions erased? Will they be able to go to magnet school for high school that they apply mm -hmm. to because their grades are worthy? Or sure. Will they get into college? Sure. So I, I hope, I, and I am as optimistic as you are that one day when they run for Senate or something fantastic like yep. that, um, that, that would be great. But well, they certainly will. I can guarantee you that. They're <laughs> learning from you. You trust me on this. So there's something I do know about. So let me uh, uh, kind of uh, just qualify that for a second, kind of... Uh, 
uh, digress on the point of getting into schools and academia. And let's have a frank conversation about what children are learning in schools and particularly public schools, um, CRT, uh, pronouns, he, she, you know, all of that kind of stuff that's been putting out. I don't know that we necessarily, and I've thought a lot about this. I'm a father of a seven and a 10 year old, and I don't really want my children going to a public school. I don't want my children, you know, I dream of them going to Hillsdale, not Harvard. I say that all the time. I said, I'm more interested in them having a well-rounded civic ability to go ahead and think for themselves. I train them through, through Khan Academy myself. They go through that and they literally demand going to the next lesson because they earn money by getting through each of the lessons. I literally pay them for the stuff that they learn through Khan Academy. And I don't know that we want them necessarily socializing with people who are going to demand that they feel uncomfortable because they're not accepting of certain things and certain norms that they've established. And our norms are norms. Uh, that's what's made this country strong for 246 years. So, you know, whether or not they get into that magnet school, um, I would say it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, maybe might be a blessing in disguise whether or not they get into that college that we all you know want to mount that frame with Yale Harvard and all that I don't want my children going to uh, uh, Yale I mean after all Hunter Biden graduated from there so you know, I think there's a silver lining in, the, in those clouds, uh, folks. And, so, Eddie, you bring up a great point. I think school boards across the country are sacrificing academic excellence to turn our children into little activists at the expense of education. Mm-hmm. And in Fairfax County, math scores have plummeted uh, the passing level of students in Fairfax County passing their standardized um, tests. Yep. It's plummeted. Math, in particular, pre and post pandemic, has gone down 25%. Yeah. But not your kids. Not my children because they were at home. (laughs) Um, But I've seen like the kind of the the rigorous um, curriculum that I was using when they were at home with me. And I compare that to what is happening in the school and the kind of the kind of things that they're being subjected to in the school that have absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with education or what public school should be doing. It's just educating our children. And they're really, they're doing a disservice to our children and, and more broadly as patriots to future citizens of our nation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, um, fortunately for you and I, we only have one job. I'm dad, you're mom. And uh, we definitely don't have to worry about that. But you're putting it on your shoulders to go ahead and take it on behalf and run for school board so you can change it for them. So good on you for caring about your community. You've been featured on Hannity, Fox and Friends back in March. Your local NBC and Fox 5 affiliate have been covering you uh, there locally as well. How has it impacted you and your family socially for standing up on behalf of your kids? I imagine the other 24, 25 children who are also suspended, you probably formed a bond with them, getting together and saying, you know what, we got to be a support group for each other because we're getting attacked. Tell me how it's yes. impacted you and your family. You know, I mean, even as far as your ability to bring an in income, how you're perceived uh, in your social circles. Uh, tell me about that because uh, you know you're more than just mom. You're more than just you're you're a person you're part of a who has yeah. too right. So I am a small business owner. So fortunately, I'm my own employer. A lot of people who wanted to be in the fight could not because they had jobs that didn't allow them to do that. They were concerned about their economic security if they did get involved in the fight. So I I received a lot of outreach from those people who said, thank you for being the voice for those of us who can't speak up because we might lose our jobs. So I received people were making me pies, bringing me dinners and stuff like that. So a lot of people who supported me, um, really came out to help in that way. Um, 
there were some people who I was kind of uh, more acquaintances with um, who had different ideas about the usefulness of masks and what everybody should do in terms of compliance. They completely stopped speaking to me or staring at me in the schoolyard. I don't care about them because I wouldn't want to be friends with them anyhow. Um, I did find, I and I was a plaintiff with her on my lawsuit. Um, uh, she's a, a woman, the woman who runs the Independent Women's Forum. I'm not sure if you have heard of them. No, I Eddie, but um, they also run and they have a booth at, here at CPAC. Um, it's the Independent Women's Network. Okay. And uh, and they are just a fantastic group of independent thinking women. And and they were like, we are we are completely on your side. We're let us know what you can do to support us. And they're involved in. Um, they've created, for example, the Women's Bill of Rights um, to keep you know female sports female. Um, and I, uh, they're they were a new group of friends to me. And um and I just I'm really really thankful for the people in the community that I did find on this journey and I tried to not think too much about the ones I've lost. Yeah, we've gone through a lot uh, and you know, we are also very tough on ourselves and we oftentimes don't think of ourselves as victims which is what makes us conservative and uh, we want to continue to take the fight but it is trying on us and our emotions and I think of the young girls who are in their formative years and they're competing, cheerleading, I don't know, swimming, uh, soccer, baseball, whatever they, you know, softball, whatever they decide to go ahead and play and I can't imagine having to face, you know, being forced upon them. It's like, well, I now have to accept this person as the same and equal to me. So I think we want to plug people into this independent women's forum so that they can understand that. Yes. Do you know much about that? How can we get in contact with them? And uh, is there a website for them? Yes. So you can find them online. Even if you just Google independent women's forum, independent women's network in particular has um, chapters all over the country. I love the fact that it says independent. Yes. I think that is really cool. Um, it, it feels a little nonpartisan, which, you know, it's hard, sort of hard to sell people in our community and in, in New Mexico and Albuquerque were as blue as, as blue can be. Oh, this is wonderful. And uh, uh, keep women's sports female, independent women's network. It's, I believe, I have bad eyesight. IWnetwork.com, IWnetwork.com. It's independent women's network. So we want to get people in our community plugged into that, maybe help start a chapter in New Mexico and get people fighting back. Because, you know, we have to, like jujitsu, you teach people how to fight. Um, we need to be uh, sort of uh, iron sharpens iron, uh, other people grooming other people. And I think that that's uh, super important. I want to talk a little bit about, um, by the way, we're with Stephanie Lundquist Aurora. Uh, she is the mother of three boys, been married 17 years out of Fairfax. County, the uh, you know, grounds are. Let's let's actually talk about Youngkin for a second. How did you get involved with his campaign? How did you help with that? And how big of an election in your mind and for the rest of the country was that win? I think um, when. I think it's huge. the The indicator is, I think there's a realignment happening in the in the middle in our country. The left has, the Democratic Party has completely left the middle in our in our in our country. And what happened in Virginia is symptomatic of that. Um, when his opponent McAuliffe stated it during a debate. Parents have absolutely no right to have any say in what their children are reading or learning. Basically, he said that this is not a quote verbatim, but it's this is the gist of what he had said in the debate. You can look it up if you're interested. And um, and I think that was the shift in the mind. A lot of proponents of education generally, um, children's especially public education, heard that and they were like, "Wait a minute, what's happening? This is actually this is happening all across the country." And um and it wasn't. I, I think. 
probably Youngkin could have still beat McAuliffe in that in that, and they brought the Democrats brought all of their kind of top brass. Oh, Obama sure. came yeah. out like yeah, all, Terry McAuliffe all, was there. I mean, yes. head of the uh, DGA and everything they, else. They all came out in favor for him, and I think I think Youngkin still there's something special about um, about him when you hear him speak. Um, but I, I think he still could have ended up winning. But uh, when when Terry McAuliffe just spoke what is his truth on that stage. I think that was the turning point for the state of Virginia, where that election was just handed to him, definitively. Um, and and the rest of the country saw this, and um, and because it's symptomatic of what's happening in the Democratic Party, we realize that like what's happening in education with parents' rights, it's not a partisan issue. There's mm-hmm. plenty of room in the tent. This it's not a partisan issue. This is a parents' issue. It is, yeah. I think that's why I like so much about the uh, IW network. I think that's what I like about what you guys are doing. I think we need to go ahead and broaden that tent, and I think that's what we're here. At CPAC to do. And uh, speaking of, we, you and I started talking about uh, the midterms and we are talking about elections. And uh, by, you know, something I get tired of saying is we cannot rest on our laurels. It's not going to be a red wave. I'd like to get your thoughts. I mean, the Youngkin win is big, but uh, you're working hard. You're running for school board. I'd like to get your thoughts on what you see in, uh, for the midterms. What, what are your thoughts 90 days out? We need to have a complete shift in in government right now. And um, and a lot of, a lot, like we were talking before, Eddie, a lot of people do think that that's happening or going to happen. But you can't just sit aside and it's hope is not a method. Mm-hmm. So if you if you think and you agree that especially having to do with education was a, which is a top priority even in federal politics we have three um, great candidates running in Fairfax County in the house it's a very large county but um, Jim Miles in particular in the 11th district okay. his top his top priorities are inflation gas prices That's number and energy yeah. and education okay. so those are his top three issues now when, when Youngkin ran was education the top issue because of uh, the very thing that was happening because yes. of nationally. Okay. Yep, that's right. All right, that's good. So educate. Now, we're, by the way, in New Mexico, we are fiftieth. We're fiftieth oh. in literacy, fiftieth in graduation, or fifty-first if you include DC. I'm aware of the absolute worst. So uh, what, your words are having a huge impact, and I think that uh, your words at some point uh, in your future, I see good things for you big things for you. I think uh, once uh, you become an empty nester, you'll be running for maybe Congress, maybe Senate, maybe something like that. So keep your eye on the ball, especially with your background. Uh, it's these little fights that are the building stones for the things in the future. So those are things that you got to These are the big and, fights, and Once Eddie. you learn how to fight, you never stop fighting. Yeah. And this is for the future of our country. I even tell, I mean, in, in Fairfax County, we had a property tax increase of um, 8%. Oh, so wow. I tell people, yes, just <laughs> this year. That's a lot. And especially when you, when you factor in how much the houses are there, 8% mm-hmm. is quite a lot. Right. And I tell people, you know, it, they're like, oh, well, they might not be interested in the school board because they don't have children in school or they've never had children. And, and I say to them, do you pay property tax? And everyone's mm-hmm. like, yeah, of course. And everyone's aware of the property tax situation. I'm like, well, more than 50% of that property tax is going to what they're doing to kids, the right. future citizens of this country in public right. schools. So you should care even if you don't have children. Having an impact at the local level is probably the most life-changing thing. And that win for Youngkin, what you're doing there for your school board, raising your family, which I don't know if you got had an opportunity to see the prime minister of uh, Hungary 
uh, yesterday. Yes, I did see that. How about that? Your thoughts on that? The political, the family as the smallest political unit and the most sensitive political unit. I just spoke volumes, I think, to everybody here at CPAC. I think uh, in, in terms of my family, my family is the center of the universe. And we were talking before about being a mother and being a father. And we, of course, wear many other hats and we are a human. But to me, being a mother to my boys is the most important calling in, in life for me, regardless yeah. of all of the other things that I'm doing. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, Stephanie Lundquist, Aurora, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to uh, our population in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We've got 1.1 million. Uh, we actually have Hannity on our air. I have Glenn Beck on our air. We have Clan Buck. You know, I host my show, of course. And then, you know, we've got uh, Bill O'Reilly, Ben, and Dana, and, you know, Ground Zero. We have so much uh, good programming. But I think we need to talk more and more to people who are taking the fight to them that are actually out there on the field and not just behind the microphone. So thank you for what you do. Thanks a lot for having me, Eddie. Back after a quick break here in the Kiva, AM 1600 KIV, ABQ.FM, rockoftalk.com. More from CPAC 2022 in Dallas, Texas. AM 1600 KIV, ABQ.FM, rockoftalk.com, broadcasting from CPAC 2022 in Dallas, Texas. Glad to be here with everybody, and we've done probably about 15 interviews uh, thus far. Our next guest here is Will Moravitz, PhD. Dr. Moravitz is the author of The Blue Divide, Policing and Race in America. You know, Albuquerque has uh, probably the highest murder rate per capita right now in this country. Uh, We're more than uh, 85 murderers on the year, Dr. Moravitz. It's pretty crazy. And uh, as author of this book, uh, Policing and Race in America, I'm glad to make your acquaintance because possibly you can help us with what's going on on the streets of Albuquerque. It's not just in Albuquerque, but it's throughout the rest of the country. And this is a Amazon number one bestseller. Thanks for joining me. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Uh, What made you decide to write this book? Uh, I mean, I can only think of all the motivation we think of a city like Albuquerque, but uh, our case isn't the only place where that's happening like this and right. uh, we've got the narrative that's been constructive you know we talk about the, the number of killings on the street and the narrative is it seems to be backwards what can you tell us and and sort of let us some insight as to what's happening well what got me interested in that topic was uh, i'd been a police officer in texas uh that went into education and really with the the hands up don't shoot michael brown and ferguson right that was where i started to really pay attention to this the the actual data but also these these cases that became national news in my college courses i would teach a little bit of a, a like a crash course and use of force with my students i'd, I'd take them down from from the uh, their seat and we would act out some things and they loved it and they they all kind of got a good understanding uh, that what they're being told in the media is largely false after george floyd was killed and the the massive protest uh, many of which turned violent <clears throat> that led to this the the politicians saying defund the police some were saying abolish the police i felt like i needed to write this book to get it out to a, a, a wider audience 
you know, kind of to debunk the, the prevailing narrative. We have a huge issue in our city on the use of force. We have um, every single, I mean, uh, th- there could be someone who was pushed down who's a criminal, and immediately our police officers have to file a use of force, which is six to eight hours of paperwork. It creates a lot of bureaucracy uh, for our police officers. And you write a little bit about this in, in your book, understanding the police training and the principles upon which training is based. And our police officers have an deal with way more grooming and training than they should need to. Yeah. Um, I, I feel bad for our police officers. What can you tell us about what the DOJ may have implemented in terms of those training and what would just be, you know, standard normal procedure for most police officers, which is, hey, you know, uh, this is what you should do. Here's how you handle it. And now it's filling out paperwork. Well, what, what I talk about in my book is mostly deadly use of force. So I spent a lot of time talking about the training about using deadly force, but the the beginning part is learning about the continuum, right? Officers called to the scene, they show up, that's officer presence. A lot of times people, at least historically, would just go like, oh, the cops are here, let's calm down. And it moves all the way up to, to deadly force. And you're right, nowadays, most departments, if you pull out, pull out the taser, but don't even use it, got, got to fill out paperwork, got to... Uh, Policing a lot of times is large chunks of boredom mixed with minutes of high adrenaline. And the more intense the adrenaline is, the longer your paperwork's going to be. But, you know, police are trained to, well, they always have the advantage, right, when you look at the use of force. Because imagine a police department that says, you know, you can't fire your weapon to defend yourself unless someone's shooting at you right you know so that's just totally insane yeah so do not fire until fired upon so we're consistently always on defense and and we understand the rules of engagement in terms of a very practical matter but how often uh, do we see these uh, situations resulting in the death of those who give the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of our community yeah one of the, the the things that is out there a lot is you know this killing of unarmed black men. Uh, <clears throat> only six. I, I told you this before. Yeah, six last year was only six. only six. Sometimes it's like nine. It's it's usually between about five and fifteen. It's not hundreds or thousands. The way the no. media narrative uh, seems to be playing out, it seems like it's uh, yeah. It's that, old, uh, there's a, a, a guy named Ami Horowitz who does some of mm-hmm. these like man on the street interviews, and he was in Minneapolis after George Floyd, and he asked a bunch of uh, black residents how many do you think got killed and, and they're like oh hundreds and then she's like oh you mean the whole nation it's like it's got to be thousands it was nine that year that he was talking about uh, and, and even then unarmed people can pose a deadly threat uh, just because someone is unarmed doesn't mean they can't kill you and in this country every year hands and feet kill about twice as many people as all rifles not just the ar-15 but shotguns everything so you know like michael brown like oh he was unarmed but he he had uh, grabbed the gun 
he had threatened, tried to pull it. Right. So he, he's already exhibited that he's willing to, to kill the officer. And so when he charges back at him, officer shot him. You know, and, and that was a the the that was considered unarmed because right. it wasn't his weapon. Right. City, state, and the DOJ investigated that. Totally exonerated Officer Wilson. But to this day, you know, what has been almost ten years later, people will still repeat the hands up, don't shoot. You know, and, and that's not it's not helping the situation and it's actually leading into more dangerous situations where you know you got to fund the police which hurts people of color the most uh, but then you also get like these district attorneys that are kind of the anti-law enforcement and so you, you arrest somebody and then by the time you're back in your patrol car it's like you look up and they're letting him out the front door right. and it's it's demoralizing but it's it's really hurting our communities because they're like work there's no punishment you're right. describing our community to a T. Have you ever been to Albuquerque? Yes. Okay. And, um, you know, of course, uh, Breaking Bad and all of that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, the criminals run the streets in Albuquerque, and we have the Department of Justice who are there. And all the very things that you're speaking of, the hands up, don't shoot, uh, you know, the um, racial profiling as they've tried to go ahead and, and you know, make sure that you can't um, talk to certain communities of color, particularly immigrants, and, you know, they're constantly trying to protect them but yet we see crime that skyrocket and then they will though they know that they can get away with it um some of the data probably that you've researched and that you have in this book probably backs up those claims yeah the the defund the police movement crime in every major city increased to the point where some of the cities refunded the police the year the next budget year um but there's another effect. When you scrutinize officers for, for doing their job to the point where they're being threatened, they have to be under 24-hour protection because people are going to go to the house or whatever. Um, it, it's what they, they call the Ferguson effect. Now they kind of call it the Minneapolis effect after George yeah. Floyd. But it's this, this sense where police will take a step back and, and be more reactive than proactive. What that means is the protect and serve to prevent crime it, it goes down because they're they're just waiting to be called they're they're not proactively policing because they're afraid of this viral video that's going to ruin their career possibly we of course know put, that the yeah. uh, there's lots of coaching by tiktok and instagram and all the other places that you can film a police officer yeah. and you're within your rights uh you know, to do so so the police uh when they don't have something called qualified immunity and we just got rid of that uh, this last year in the state of new mexico so if you were to become a police officer Officer again, you wanted to go and you know patrol our streets. You would be personally liable for anything that would actually happen. Can you think of a more insane measure against our no, police officers? It, 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 and all it's going to do is hurt the public, especially the areas that have more crime, which un unfortunately tend to be uh, communities of color. But what? What good person was like, oh, I'll be a cop, and if I mess up, I lose my life savings, they take my house, right. whatever. 
that's a situation that nobody wants to be in. And so what you're going to have is is people that would make good cops are going to go somewhere else. Right. And it's going to leave you with, you know, a substandard police force. Have we seen an increase in the number of uh, retirements uh, in the Blue Cities? Have you looked at that as oh, part yeah. of your study? Oh, yeah. Tell me about what you're finding uh, where people are just, you know, leaving uh, police units. I, I recently read an article where an entire um, police force resigned uh, en masse. Yeah, that was a, a kind of a small department, but they, they got a, a new district attorney and the chief. Everybody just walked away. But you so look they have at, no police. Yeah. So but you look at Portland, Chicago, New York. uh they are losing about two to three times more officers per year than they're recruiting. So a lot of these officers are retiring or they're going to another location and work for a different department. Sure. Governor DeSantis like was given bonuses out to, to people that would leave those cities and come be police in Florida. Um, Florida is incredibly safe. Yeah. Police are everywhere. And, you know, the, 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 the thing when officers are demonized, people that would make good cops choose other professions. Cops that are already there are going to take their family somewhere that's more pro-police or they're just going to take early retirement. Uh, and, and all that does is make the, the crime situation worse in every city that's in an accident. I think... Um what you're saying uh, backs up our gut reaction to uh, policing throughout the rest of the country. Every blue city is increasing crime. Every red city has decreased. You see what Governor DeSantis is doing. And I'd like to talk about remedies. I'd like to think about hope. Uh, I think a lot of the hope is, hey, I'm just going to pick up and leave the city because it's not safe. I can't raise my kids here any longer. Um, Has any of your data and studies and um, sort of investigations, any of this led to a changing of these departments in in a better way? So when you take a city like Albuquerque, and I know you're going to look at it now because you're going to be very interested in what's going on there. um, Can you see that there's, if there's any hope for us, for a community like ours? Well, I think so for a couple of, of reasons. In a lot of the issues, policing and other types of cultural, social issues, people are really starting to wake up and, and, and realize there's a problem. So what you have to do is recruit law and order type DAs, people that will run for, for those offices, mayors, and think that will support police. We had and a just, Soros-backed DA, and he's right. now going to be the attorney general. You, you just want to get the people in. They're going to let the police do their job, mm-hmm. right? If, if, if they break the law, if they break procedure, they should be punished or dealt with accordingly, mm-hmm. but just let them do their job. The other thing that I advocate is to, to bridge that gap between the communities, especially of, of color and the police, is to have more open conversation. Uh, I was on a podcast with uh, some police officers and they admitted that, you know, we don't do a good job of, of getting out there and just meeting the people. And part of the reason why that is, is crime so high. So you don't have time to, you know, get out there and play basketball with the kid on the street or whatever. But I, I really advocate 
for citizens to go through the Citizens Police Academy that pretty much every department has that they're a decent size because they'll see firsthand what some of the training is. Then they'll go on a ride along at the end and they'll actually see for themselves. And when people do that, it increases the understanding. Sure. So you're saying that there's something called a Citizens Police Academy? Yeah. Most uh, departments that are in decent-sized cities will have uh, – it, it varies, but it's usually like uh, maybe five Saturdays or it could be like in the evening every – every day of the week and they just go through some you know kind of a crash course and police training and then the last step is they they have to go on a ride along for like our department it was four hours they could go longer if they wanted to and some did uh, but you know they get a sense of what it's really like when the rubber meet, meets the road and it, it even if you're a supporter of police it increases your appreciation for the job and if you're not a supporter of police, it increases the understanding and it makes makes them better. And then that person that that has a change of heart goes and tells their their husband or their wife or their friends, and more people are like, oh, it 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 really is different. And then I got to tell you, just you're blowing my mind. Uh, by the way, the book is The Blue Divide: Policing and Race in America. Will Moravitz, PhD, Dr. Moravitz, uh, here with me. Um, if there's a police officer that's uh, listening, I know there's many. Uh, could you text me directly and let us know whether or not we have a Citizens Police Academy? Because that would be awesome and yeah. and get people involved. You know, uh, that's something we can do tomorrow. And many of our listeners would sign right up, and they want to go with that, and you know, uh, sign up for ride along. So um, we we do have a couple of things that I do want to just ask. You about I, I could sit here and talk to you for hours uh, about this stuff because we have such a problem in the state of New Mexico, and we have that turnstile justice system. No bondsman. I mean, it, it's a it's a disaster. But um, we think about the engagement when we place those nine one one calls uh, here in Albuquerque, and there's always a delay. They put us on hold. We get cycled through. The response time is one to two minutes. Oftentimes, I'm now getting a text that says, "We'll be on your case in the next hour or two. It's a nine one one call. I'm getting text right. messages that are coming in. Uh, you can imagine um, how difficult uh, and frustrating it must be for a citizen of our city to absolutely, you know, handle that. Um, your thoughts? on that well we, we've seen that in other cities I, I teach texas government as one of my courses and dallas pd where we are right now at cpac has a like a four to five minute response time average that's really great so, we, we we in albuquerque are now 14 minutes really yeah that's the but, it, for a level one is 14 minutes it's and it's because they're understaffed to, to the point where, you know, if you're on a call, you, you pretty much don't get pulled off of it and, unless it's like there's an active shooter or there's a murder or there's something, you know, something really big. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, it happens out. You, you kind of, it's kind of like triage. You got to, you, you get 39 calls. You've got maybe four officers. You got to go take the most serious ones first and then down. And so somebody's like, hey, there's somebody out there trying to steal the stereo out of my truck. And you're like, well, I'm over here dealing with the rape case. You're just going to have to sit there. And unfortunately, there's an old saying that says uh, cots are always minutes away when you only have seconds to spare. Yeah. Uh, Even in the most 
perfect uh, police response, there's going to be a delay. Sure. Um, and that that's just, you know, you got to call, someone's got to see a crime. They got to decide, oh, I call 911. Dispatcher has to get the information. Then they have to send it to the officer. I got called to a, a stabbing in progress uh, at a local grocery store when I was literally around the corner. And I just pulled right in and put the, they were already gone because there was about yeah. a, a minute delay from the incident to getting the call from dispatch. Um, so, you know, kind of off on a tangent, but that's one of the reasons why I think people, uh, you know, need to, to defend themselves. Conceal and carry, open carry. Uh, I'm a big constitutional carry yeah. guy. I think, uh, you know, we're starting to have uh, legislation that's proposed like in, in Florida where they're saying, well, if you have, you know, the uh, concealed carry in your state, well, it works here. Right. There's, it's, it's court. Uh, yeah, there's reciprocity for Texas and a, and a lot of states. I can carry, I want to say in about 40 states. Well, not New uh, Mexico, I don't think, but... Uh, I'm not sure if New Mexico. Yeah, we no, do, I, we'd have open carry. Uh, well, I always do conceal, but yeah, when I went to Rio Doso recently for a week, I, you were good. I, call, I looked into it, made sure that New Mexico had a reciprocity with Texas. Okay. Um, so it's just an agreement between the governments of, of Nevada and Texas, and they do it with you know many other states. Um, but you know, I, I think citizens kind of earning that position with crime going up, police leaving the profession and, and leaving understaffed, defunding, all those things. You know, I give you an example. I was I was born and raised in Uvalde, Texas. I, I went to Rob Elementary. One of the teachers that was murdered grew up three houses down from me. I, I know a lot of the cops that responded too. And there's a lot of criticism with the, the school, with the police agencies. But my point is, as quickly as the officers got there, let's just say that those initial four officers were able to get in the room and, and kill the shooter. Well, he had stopped shooting already. 150 rounds or whatever he had fired before the police even got down to the room. Okay. So those kids are still dead. You know, so that that's what I say. The police are always minutes away when yeah. seconds are spare. So, so I'd love to learn, I think, more about Evaldi, Texas and our schools. And I think you and I are going to be in contact. I think uh, we have found our uh, resident expert uh, definitely for the radio station uh, when it comes to this. The Blue Divide is the uh, book. Uh, helping exposing the false narrative surrounding police killings of black people, understanding police training, principles upon which training is uh, based, what George Floyd was killed because of race. Uh, all these are uh, in there. I picked up the book uh, for myself. I want you to pick it up uh, as well. Dr. Moravitz, uh, we're going to have you on the program again. I think we could learn a lot from you. And I think next time that we pick it up, we definitely have to talk about Uvalde, Texas. And sure. whether or not our teachers should be caring, I think that that's something that I would like to see. I think our, you know, it's like there is a Citizens Police Academy. I'd like to see a uh, Teacher's uh, Police Academy uh, for them yeah, to go I, through. So my wife's an elementary teacher, and I taught high school before I went into college. And you are, you're kind of at the mercy of these things. And at, in Texas, if, if you work at a college, you can carry your a concealed gun. So now at work, I'm in my room, I'm, I'm packing, and so I know that 
myself and my students are going to have a fighting chance. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Dr. Moravitz, thank you for your time, sir. Well, thank you so uh, much. Again, the book it. is The Blue Divide. Back after a quick break here in the Kiva on AM 1600 KIVA, ABQ.FM, com. More interviews when we return. AM 1600 KIVA, ABQ.FM, com. Continuing our interviews here from CPAC 2022 in Dallas, Texas. I'm having a great time. And uh, folks, again, we're just meeting great people, great Americans. And uh, we're here with Gun Owners of America, Stephen Williford. And uh, he is considered the hero. Texas Monthly actually wrote about him uh, back in 2017. And he's uh, going to give us our story and why it's so important uh, to protect ourselves. We just had an interview with the Blue Divide, Will, Dr. Will Moravitz, and he was just bragging about you, took a photo with you. And uh, uh, thank, thankfully, you were there on that uh, morning to go ahead and protect you in your church. So tell us a little bit about what happened. Well, it was uh, November 5th, 2017. Somebody came into my church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Sutherland Springs, we're told the population of 600 or less. Uh, he started shooting into the church and uh, from the outside, inside, and shooting through the windows and he dropped 15 30-round magazines. 15? 15, 15, inside and out of the church. My daughter made me aware of what was going on. I grabbed my own AR-15 and ran across the street. He had on Class 3 body armor, a ballistic bulletproof helmet, and I was barefoot. And he was in the church as I ran across. And I yelled out, and he heard me, and he came outside the church shooting at me. Wow. He, I ran to a truck for cover, and he put bullets in the truck. He shattered the windshield of the car behind me, and he hit the house behind me. I was able to put six out of six rounds on him. Most of them didn't count because he had the bullet. Right, the armor. Vest. Yeah, class three, as you mentioned. Yes, and a ballistic helmet, too. But I was able to uh, shoot in between the plates, and uh, I took was him able. Out. What's that? Then you took him out. I took him out. Well, he actually was able to get into his vehicle that was sitting in the middle of the street with the engine running and the driver's side door open. He got into his vehicle. He put two more rounds through the side window at me. I put one where I perceived his head to be. I couldn't see it because of the reflection. Yeah. Uh, but it broke across his forehead. He accelerated, turned the corner. He was running away as fast as he could. I put one through the back windshield. It went through the driver's side seat and hit him just right of the left shoulder blade. And he topped the hill. I flagged down a truck. And I jumped in, and we chased him for 11.6 miles, and he committed suicide. Unbelievable story. Uh, 
um, and your heroism as well. I mean, the church, you were the right, kind of the right place, 450 round unleash uh, on the people in the church. What happened to the people in the church? Who was hit? Uh, how many casualties? Anybody wounded? What, what happened? 26 people died. 20 more were wounded. Uh, and there was no sign of him stopping. I'm so sorry for your loss, and I'm, there are no words, but there are actions that you took on that day, uh, Mr. Williford, that uh, result in the uh, uh, ultimate cost uh, to him. But you know what's happened in the community there, I imagine the impact, and probably so many more people now, uh, I would imagine, are now protecting themselves and thinking a little bit more about that, the impact on that. You know, I, I don't want to get into that, but the, the, the impact on your community, I couldn't even begin to understand. Absolutely. But my story's important because it makes you realize the police were five to seven minutes behind me. Five to seven minutes that my community didn't have. And I used an AR-15, and I'd run across the street with a pistol or something less. I probably would have been counted among the dead. I own an AR myself. I'm happy to have it. Uh, I got to tell you that uh, I spend time practicing. Uh, I think that we head on over to the Calibers range, and uh, we we I have a lot of two two three and five five six uh, that we have, and you know uh, I think going through. The thoughts and the practice in our heads and the situation is as important as also learning to use a, the gun to protect yourself. So tell us a little bit about that in terms of the scenarios and employing those. When we go through training for concealed carry, I mean, these are the things that we have to think of. You, you couldn't have begun the thought of a man showing up in class three body armor uh, there on the doorsteps of your church, taking out 26 people, firing over 450 rounds. You, you, nothing could Actually, I can't even believe this, and I don't believe in coincidences, uh, but the, I used to shoot on a team, and one of our team members was a former Army Ranger, and he was a San Antonio police officer. And in between competitions, him and I would shoot together and enjoy it. And we would practice different scenarios. And for three weeks straight, he taught me how to shoot around body armor. Why would wow. I have done that? Right. I'm a plumber. Why would I have needed to know how to shoot around body armor? Right. And those, the training and the practice for that is ultimately what allowed you to finally get the criminal, the man who murdered all those people. Absolutely. And I tell people, and I'm not the originator of this saying, but they say the body can never go where the mind has never been. Yeah, I agree. So, it, so you have to start thinking about these things. Yeah. And what would I do? 
and decide it and decide it before it happens and then you'll follow through yeah absolutely so as uh take us through it if you can help us uh, through that as you were going in barefoot in the vehicle and the man next to you is almost as courageous as you were just picking up and and going after that guy as as so many casualties and uh, victims lay in the church so you're going to get them through 11.6 miles um and you being able to pierce that body armor wound him in the left shoulder hit him six separate times actually i hit him in the left chest i hit him in the abdomen and both those shots were stopped by the body armor but when he turned to his side i hit him underneath the arm between the plates and i hit him high in the legs and uh he got into the vehicle. I, I put one across his forehead, and then as he was running away, I put one right at the left shoulder blade. Wow. Uh, I, I gotta say, uh, yeah, the the body can't go where the mind has never been. I think nothing could speak louder to why people need to go ahead and go through those scenarios and practice. Gun owners of America practice that. You guys are a lobbying group. You guys are uh, protecting our Second Amendment rights up in Washington D.C. We know that they're going for the guns. Specifically in New Mexico, uh, you know, we have our local regional director, GOA regional director for New Mexico, Monty Bowen. Uh, you can find him at monty.bowen at gunowners.org. That's M-O-N-T-E dot Bowen at gunowners.org. But uh, Stephen, uh, tell us how you got involved with Gun Owners of, uh, of America. Actually, I guess they called me up. They had me come speak in Virginia, and then they paid my way to go to the governor's roundtable meeting after El Paso, and I did several things with them on the Texas state capitol. Okay. And uh, I helped them uh, light the grassroots on fire here in Texas. Yeah. And we were able to accomplish getting 14 pro-gun bills on the desk of the governor and got them signed. And GOA saw the value of what I was doing, and I joined the team. Oh, that's good. That's great. Tell us about some of those bills. Tell us, because these are the bills uh, that we don't have in our own state. Uh, I am disappointed to say, but, you know, right now we have red flag laws that they just employed in in New Mexico. So tell us about some of these 14 bills, some of the highlights. Well, so the big one was to get constitutional carry passed in Texas. And that was a hard fight. We also got bills like uh, the Second Amendment Sanctuary State here in Texas, uh, meaning that we won't accept any unconstitutional gun laws from the federal government. We'll ignore them. We got the Suppressor Freedom Act passed, meaning that any suppressor made in the state of Texas, stamped made in the state of Texas, and does not leave the borders of the state of Texas, the ATF or the FBI can't call what Texas calls legal. They can't call it illegal. Wow. These are all very important bills. Uh, when we talk about uh, the constitutional carry, we have it in the state of New Mexico. They've been coming after that. I think that that's open. I open carry myself. I went to the concealed carry, and the reason why I open carry is I don't want to go through and get registered on the concealed carry. But uh, these are very important uh, things that you're doing on behalf of gun owners, uh, the state of New Mexico, and the rest of the country. How big is your organization, and how can people get involved? We're 
about two and a half million and go to gunowners.org. Please sign up. We are in the fight. We got the bump stock ban overturned. People don't know that. But gun owners of America are responsible for that. And just recently, Biden signed the ghost gun ban. And we got with 17 attorney generals from different states. And they signed on to our lawsuit. And we got that postponed indefinitely. Wow. So it was supposed to be implemented of August just a few days ago. Yeah. And that got postponed because we're in the fight. Yeah. You are in the fight. You've been in the fight personally. Uh, But I'm still shocked by the story that you tell me. And by the way, folks, you guys can find this uh, story of Stephen Williford, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Williford, W-I-L-L-E-F-O-R-D, www.texasmonthly.com, or just subscribe at rockoftalk.chat, as uh, D-Dowd Musk will have it in the show notes uh, for this evening. But this is an important uh, organization. Finally, when you talk about bump stocks, immediately uh, what comes to, to mind is Route 91 and what happened in Las Vegas, Nevada. And they were obviously immediately following that, going after the bump stocks and talking about uh, that. And I'm glad. I mean, these were people that were just attending a country country concert right there on the strip uh, there in Las Vegas, uh, uh, Nevada. I'd like to kind of, for someone who's been through um, a mass casualty event and, and seen that, um, what else can we do to be vigilant as, you know, citizens? What else can, can we do other than training and obviously advocating uh, for these these types of uh, things that are going to allow us to go ahead and carry? What else can we do, Stephen, to protect ourselves? Well, well, being vigilant is the number one thing. Watching out, training, being armed yourself, uh, fighting for the, our rights, uh, we need to do away with gun-free zones nationwide. We need to start arming our teachers and training our teachers yeah, I agree. to be ready for I something agree. like this. We can no longer let our te- teachers and our schools be be helpless. I was just talking with this man uh, who's from Evaldi, Texas, and uh, his wife's an elementary school teacher, and I think it's something that we need to make sure that all of our teachers uh, are also uh, trained in that. I'd like to get that passed, but it'd be a next to impossible. There's something that Gun Owners of America can do in the state of New Mexico with our state legislators and educating and teaching them about uh, these types of things as to why our teachers should get educated. Absolutely. And I'm Look, I'm not advocating for teachers to be forced to care, but there's always that number in each school that would carry. Sure. That, given the right, would defend themselves with their own lives 
to defend their our children. Absolutely, yeah, and that's something that we need. Uh, Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. We're going to be in contact again. We're going to get things going. I uh, want to make sure that we uh, get the word out on Gun Owners of America. You can find them on Twitter at Gun Owners. You can find them also on Instagram at Gun Owners of America. Uh, YouTube, there's a website there. What's on the YouTube site, Stephen? Do you guys have uh, 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 the YouTube is Gun Owners of America as well. What's on the YouTube side? What type of videos? Oh, you know, <laughs> he's like me. I don't like to be on on any sort of uh, social media myself. And then, of course, you got gunowners.org. Uh, Gun Owners of America is the pit bull of the Second Amendment. Senator Steve Daines of Montana. No compromise, folks. I got to tell you, uh, this has just been a, uh, a really important uh, interview and one that I'm going to learn more about by reading that article. The only no compromise gun lobby in Washington, D.C. is supported by... Well, one of my favorite guys, Ron Paul, from the great state of Texas. Stephen Williford, thank you so much for being here. Back after a quick break here in the Kiva, AM 1600 FM, or when we return from CPAC 2022 in Dallas, Texas. AM 1600 FM, here with Trent England, the executive uh, director of saveourstates.com folks we've talked about the popular vote we know that we don't want new mexico to matter right isn't that what the democrats are kind of all about here in our state and here at cpac in dallas 2022 this is exactly at least i suspect i don't know i'm I'm not an expert on this but we've got the guy who is trent england with saveourstates.com and talking about going to a national popular vote as it is on the front page at SaveOurStates.com, national popular vote is 72% of the way to nullifying the Electoral College. They only need a few more states to sort of get this done. Trent, uh, this is alarming. Yeah, it, it is absolutely alarming, and more people need to know about it. it. It is a direct threat to our Constitution, to the integrity of presidential elections, and to states like New Mexico having any relevance at all in Washington, D.C., and our executive branch, which has so much power. Let's translate that, what that means. Uh, national campaign, where would the presidential campaign only go to? They would never visit a place like Albuquerque with a population of 560,000 people. They would only visit, I don't know, the biggest cities in the biggest states. Yeah, places that are easy to get to, easy to do ad buys. It would become all about media markets. States would just disappear. You know, wouldn't even be the big states. It would be the big cities, the big, uh, you know, metro areas like the Los Angeles area, the San Francisco area, Chicago. You know, you got the, the uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut uh, media market there. I mean, that would be the obvious path to the presidency, especially for Democrats, because they already draw most of their power from the big cities. They're frustrated that they have to listen to people in New Mexico, in Nevada, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin. You know, the Electoral College forces them to go beyond their base. And I think it forces Republicans to do something similar. And so, you know, you've, you've got people saying, let's just do, do away with that. It'd be able to ignore huge swaths of the country. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a real threat to our politics 
and really, I think the survival of our, our country. I, I don't think that's putting I, it too strongly. I, no, no, I think I completely agree. I think everybody who understands what a republic is and how important it is for our representatives in Washington, D.C. I mean, how uh, long will it be before we have our congressmen and our senators chosen way differently than they are? And how much power would there actually be in the legislative branch going forward? I mean, there's so many things we'd be giving away if we go to a national popular vote. How did the genesis of all this, in your opinion, and I have my hunches, and it's the fact that, well, he didn't win the national popular vote, but he won the presidency. We go back to Bush-Gore 2000, or maybe we go back to... you know, Trump and uh, Hillary Rodden Clinton in 2016. I mean, we, we, they, they've been making this argument for some time. They feel like they still have ownership of the country even when they lose elections. That's right. And they feel like the elites in the big cities, you know, if you follow the kind of rhetoric from AOC and a lot of the, the Bernie crats out there, you know, they feel like people in the big cities, they're smart, they're rich, obviously they should be in control. And uh, this this goes back, at least this version of the attacks on the Electoral College, to Bush versus Gore. Uh, there was a an Al Gore presidential elector from San Francisco who also was an extremely wealthy man. He, he invented the scratch-off lottery ticket. So he wins on every scratch ticket. I mean, it's, a, it's a crazy story. You can't make this stuff up. He's a big Bernie Sanders donor, you know, uh, Al Franken, like uh, all the usual wow. suspects. Yeah. So after the 2000 election, he stumbled across this idea that some liberal law professors had. What if you get states to pass laws to give away their electors based on the national popular vote? You would force the Electoral College to rubber stamp the popular vote result. You could essentially eliminate the Electoral College, but you're not amending the Constitution. Amending the Constitution is really hard. Doing what they're trying to do is relatively easy. I mean, because they already have California and New York and Illinois, three really big states, I mean, they could do this with a minority of states. They could have 20 or 21 states sign on to this and basically tell the rest of the country, too bad, we've changed how the Electoral College works, we've made states irrelevant, and, uh, you know, and, and I mean, done something that the founders of our country considered and and rejected, right? They rejected a national popular vote, and uh, they they are actually seventy two percent of the way to doing this. They okay, have so a whole bunch New of states Mexico's that have done this. Involved in that? That's right. Yeah, New we, Mexico we decided to go ahead on. and give it a, give away our power. The state legislators had to vote on this, and they said, "Yeah, when we're ready to go to national popular, we're ready to go to national popular vote." How much does that dilute the power of a state like New Mexico with only five electoral votes? I mean, if, if it takes effect, New Mexico basically disappears, right? I mean, it, it just—it's it, when you design a campaign. You look at your cost per vote, you know, and I don't want to go too far into the weeds, but I, I run okay. for office. I've been involved in campaigns sure. before, and so you you look at who are the the undecided voters? Those swing voters, right? And uh, and where are the, they concentrated? Where do you get the most bang for your buck, right? And this is just common sense. The electoral college forces the parties to reach out because you you can't win just by being sort of a regional candidate. And you know if that region is the big cities or the Midwest or the South or whatever. You can't win that way. You have to win by winning over a whole bunch of people in a whole bunch of states. Going to a national popular vote, you would eliminate all the state lines. You wouldn't think about states at all. And you just start with where is there a whole bunch of people 
and where's the top whole- 25 metros that's would right. be the only place that people would really go to. Yeah. And, and uh, that that's a, a, a seismic uh, yeah. amount of people that is really very smallish. You'd be looking at about 10%, 12% of the population of the country that would decide who the president is uh, for the rest of the country. And, and I mean, people in New Mexico should think about this. Los Angeles County, a single county in California, has 10 million residents. 10 million people, right? I mean, that is, uh, what, that must be about four or five times bigger than New Mexico. Uh, I know I live in in, uh, Oklahoma, and that is two and a half times bigger than our state. And that's You live in a great state, by the way. No, it is a good state. It's a good place. And we're and we're fortunate that we uh, that we share a, a border with New Mexico. <laughs> we're proud to, to very small, you a, but yeah, it's there. Right. <laughs> that, that, is, that is true. Uh, I, I I will tell you that we decided to do this. We need to get you active and involved in what's going on, just a state away. And is this something that could possibly be overturned? How can we talk Good. to this uh, heavily Democratic dominated state legislature and let them know that what they're actually doing is hurting their own power? I mean, this would only this would ultimately uh, fall by the by you know money that would come nationally from the federal yeah. government you know various other things that they would probably want i don't think that they realize that is there a way that we could convince these democrats that this is not in their best interest to do so I think even though is. that politically that it they may think that it does you no know, i i think that the the sales pitch to democrats especially in new mexico is first of all what you just said don't you want your state to matter Right. And don't you want to matter within the Democratic Party coalition? Right. Because if you go to a national popular vote, the Democratic Party coalition, not to mention the whole country, shifts to having even more power in the big cities, which means not in New Mexico. So we found Democrats in states like Wisconsin and Virginia and Nevada who opposed national popular vote because they wanted to stay relevant within their own Democratic Party. I also think that for minority Democrats, they should know that the last time there was a big push to get rid of the Electoral College was back in the latter part of the 20th century, and it was driven by some white politicians who said if we could get rid of the Electoral College, we wouldn't have to listen as much to black Americans, to Jewish Americans, to Hispanic Americans. And that is still true today, right? You have some relatively small groups of Americans, and it's not just racial groups, you have groups like farmers. They have more clout today because if they're a swing block of voters in just one swing state, then farmers all across the country have more relevance. Fishermen in in, uh, Maine matter because presidential candidates fight for a single electoral vote from one of Maine's congressional districts because they break it up there. I can see your point here. I just yeah. for jumping in, but, you know, no, no, uh, the silvery minnow or the deer right. mouse or any of these types of things, these things can be completely and totally ignored for those special interest groups yeah. because New Mexico would have no relevance. Yeah, no, and, and with the Electoral College, at least you, you've got some presidential candidates looking at New Mexico saying, hey, you know, we want to win it over or, you know, we, we've got to hold on to it. And so we've got to listen to people who have concerns about things in New Mexico. I mean, Democrats really should pay attention to this. I understand why people in San Francisco and New York, you know, AOC and those folks, I I get why they want to go to the national popular vote. It just gives them more power straight up, right? But if you're a Democrat in the middle of the country in New Mexico, you lose with this. And I think some of them voted for it because it was signaling. It was virtue signaling. We don't like what happened in 2016. We don't like Donald Trump, so we're going to vote for this national popular vote thing. 
that's in the past. We need to look at the future, and I think we can win some Democrats over that way. This is an uh, let's let's activate here. Let's get people going because I can see the Sierra Club saying, you know, we're not into the national public vote, and I'm the last supporter of the Sierra Club. <laughs> but at least if we can educate a few of these people as to what's happening, and then get them educated on yeah. it. So this is as much education as it is a little bit of activism. How? Have you seen some successful petitioning, you know, a pressure? It says, I'm here on the website, it says, take action to Mexico. It says, uh, you know, reach out to your uh, local uh, politicians and let them know. I mean, this isn't even on their radar for yeah. the most part. This is on their radar 30, 60 days before the actual election when we're talking about the electoral college. But this is something that we've got to press them on all the time. Give That's us right. some, some steps that we can take here in Albuquerque and throughout the rest of the state. Yeah, I mean, if folks can go to the website, saveourstates.com. It will help you contact your state legislators. That's really important. I mean, you may find that there are legislators who don't really even remember that this has happened. They need to know about it. And you know, be talking to candidates for the state legislature. Make sure that they're on your side uh, because there, there are lobbyists on the other side. They work this really hard. There's a small group of activists. They, you know, they, they contact your elected officials. So they need to hear from you, too. So, uh, you know, talk to your state legislators and ask them to push repeal bills next year, right? Whether they're going to go, you know, the whole distance next year or not, oftentimes it takes multiple years. Yeah. It takes some effort, but we can I, do that. I can tell you that I want to run uh, for a state legislative position only for yeah. this very bill. Like, yeah. That's how much this actually means to me. And I've run for mayor, run for Congress. Uh, I've done all of these yeah. things. I did very well in, in both of those. Didn't win, but did, did well. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, this is something that I would definitely put at the very top of my list. A convention of states is another thing. Yeah. I think uh, that both of your organizations are very comparable to this. We need to keep the power in the state. The state of New Mexico is a very powerful place. You know, we developed a bomb there. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, huge uh, national contracts, Indian National Labs, the Department of Energy. Uh, you know, the head of the Department of Interior comes from New Mexico. That's Deborah Holland. Uh, we had uh, Bill Richardson's Department of Energy. They're all Democrats. But, I mean, you get the picture. There's a lot of power in New Mexico. There'd be no reason to have any power in New Mexico going forward if the Electoral College gets uh, tipped over, I would imagine. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, New Mexico would really suffer. And, uh, yeah, it's, no, it's, a, it's a great state. My daughter is interning at the, at the lab in Los Alamos this summer. Oh, is summer. she? Okay. We have some interesting things. We could talk offline about that, but um, I'll tell you, she's got a place. friend there. So if you need for her to connect uh, with us there at the radio station, it is um, some very interesting times uh, for New Mexico, to be sure. Yeah. So uh, how can people get in touch with you? How can they get involved? Can they donate? What else can they do? Absolutely. I mean, the, our power is just the power of the grassroots. We, uh, we rely on individual donors. SaveOurStates.com is the website. And folks can find us on social media. They can find me on Twitter, at Trent England. We we connect with people. We empower people with information. We work with people to educate lawmakers, the public. We have a full-length documentary called Safeguard, an electoral Safeguard. college story. Okay, All is those that on YouTube or is it on the um, website? Safeguard. People can find uh, clips on YouTube. It's on Amazon. It's on the streaming service called Tubi. Oh, yeah. Uh, Safeguard, an electoral college story. Okay, very good. This is SaveOurStates.com. Save New Mexico is the way that you guys should uh, uh, put this yeah. out. Five reasons to keep the Electoral College by Lowenstein, the founders of federalism, the radical risk of the National Popular Vote Compact. 
all the information. Please share it. I'm not on social media, but I know many of our listeners are. Share it wherever you possibly can. Trent England, thank you, sir, for being here. And uh, tell your uh, your daughter and your family they got friends at the Kiva here at the Rock of Talk on AM 1600 KIV, ABQ.FM, com broadcasting from CPAC Dallas 2022. Back in a moment. Hey, I'm 1600 KIV, ABQ.FM, broadcasting here on this wonderful Friday. Donald Trump will be here tomorrow. He wraps up the conference, CPAC 2022, Dallas, Texas. And I'm here with Jean Nigro, and she has run for office, and she is the author of a book, of a book called The Lies We Believe About Faith and Politics. And we struck up a conversation. This is The Way Forward by Jean Nigro. Jean, uh, welcome here into the Kiva here from CPAC 2022. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You've got a smile that lights up the room, and you've got a, a passion about you that is palpable. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that you're addressing is sort of the cross-section of politics and the church. Uh, I think that's home. Our city, our state, was founded upon the Catholic Church. You know, the entire uh, people who were coming in, they established a church that was the central gathering place. And, you know, always at the heart of all politics has been the church for a very long time. And now we're at the heart of progressive politics and the complete and total separation of church and state. Uh, mm-hmm. The Catholic Church has sort of abandoned its people in the state and uh, moved towards uh, progressive politics. I come from a Catholic background, and we see more Catholic Democrats in New Mexico than we see anything else and you've got some interesting things and topics for discussion so we're going to address some of those but before we do let's get to your book and let's talk uh, first about that how'd you get involved in politics and what did you run for i know i've seen you before so where did i run into you at uh, in media (laughs) that's a good question well i actually ran for congress in new york city in manhattan so it's a very that's a big media market yeah 75 percent blue my district but it was a challenge i like a challenge and i like to be able to really express how conservative policies bring life and liberal policies bring death. And I think we all, you know, regardless of we're you know, conservative or liberal, we all have needs. We all have human needs. We want to be healthy. We want to have healthy families. We want to be able to do a job that we enjoy. We want to have the um, opportunity to grow you know, as a person, financially, in all these ways. And so if we show that conservative policies bring that, uh, I think that people will come along with us. I think so. I think the uh, Roe v. Wade uh, stunt, if you will, we still have yet to find out who released or revealed that information was a stunt to go ahead and get them saying that we're, you know, trying to take people over, take over their country and, uh, you know, look, we believe in life. We love life. You guys uh, all get to vote on this. We had a great Ronald Reagan. Uh, 100% of the people who believe in life or, or believe in abortion are all people who had parents who believed in life. And, you know, I like that whole parody between life versus Absolutely. You you have to make it simple. We have to make it simple. And I think pro-life is one aspect of life, but we need to look at a culture of life. Okay. The opportunity to grow, the opportunity to fulfill the potential that God has created us for. The opportunity to have a relationship with God. The opportunity to choose not to. I imagine this didn't translate very well in New York. Well, I think it did in terms of the just focusing on needs. I think what doesn't translate in New York is coming across as I'm, you know, 
just read, <laughs> and I'm a faith family, and we just don't have to emphasize the differences. What we have to focus on is what we have in common, what we okay. have, the human needs that we have in common. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a hard time selling the Republican Party and conservatives in the state of New Mexico. And uh, one of our themes is faith, family, and freedom. Exactly. And, and uh, why is that a turnoff in terms of embracing something that uh, seemingly that they should just uh, agree with? Uh, tell me why wouldn't that work in New York and probably doesn't work in New Mexico, obviously hasn't worked in New Mexico. I think the constituents in New York like to feel that they are... Not just unique, but that they have a choice about who they are. So they don't want to be have this um, image forced on them. Yeah. That you are. I remember. I mean, it's a, a joke, but my consultant wanted to film me in the kitchen, you know, with the apron on, like the perfect uh, Susie homemaker. And I don't cook. Yeah. So I thought no, <laughs> I'm in Manhattan. That's why I live in Manhattan. I don't cook. I don't. I don't want a big house. I don't want a big yeah. kitchen. So I think partly you have to be yourself. And no one likes to be told who they are. Yeah. They want to experience people. What a great point. I mean, when you talk about the independence and the value of the American spirit and what we came here to the people to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, John Locke, a pursuit of happiness, to choose the life that you want to live. Uh, live and let live. And, and, and that's and, what and you're and all ironic, about. Yeah, and the ironic thing is that socialism, which is what so many of the liberals are, and left are leaving toward or trying to push, is the opposite of all that. It's the opposite of being unique, it's, it's making everyone just this group of mm -hmm. non-descript people, you know, and, and it's not having a choice, and it's not having any future, and it's not doing a job that you like to do, so it's the, it's the opposite of all those things that we all want, and the reason we want them is because God put those desires in us. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really enjoy speaking with you because we're talking on topics that typically politicians don't even approach. They don't touch. They stay as far away from as possible. So let's talk a little bit about uh, we in our own community have a very powerful uh, uh, leader. His name is Steve Smotherman, Pastor Steve Smotherman. I love the man. He is a good man. He has a great following. His church has really started to grow. But, uh, you know, he's taken on the governor head on on his policies, litigated, and, uh, you know, especially anti-masking, the anti-vaxxing, being able to gather. You know, we never needed our faith more than especially during the time when everything was down and right. people were disconnected from each other. And he really took it, you know, to her as much as he could, but, you know, still sort of on the losing end. So I have to ask you yeah. those things shouldn't be political but should his church or should the church should a church be involved in politics or is it by its very nature involved in politics i believe they should because we have to look take a step back from the word politics and okay. what does politics do it legislates morality it either legislates evil that leads to death or it legislates policies that lead to growth and life and, mm -hmm. and advancing uh, god's purposes so if you are the church and you see the spiritual battle that we have really versus you know god represents and stands for and advances in life and creates life and Satan it death. And so how do we be a church and not align with God? You know, if you say you believe in God, then it means or that you're a follower of God, that you follow his heart, you follow his thoughts. Well, his heart and his thoughts are toward life. So how do you be a Christian and go to church and 
not stand for and not support policies that bring life. Yeah, absolutely. Doesn't, doesn't I, make sense. And and also in all this battle, this political battle that we see, it's spiritual battle. Yeah. So if the church doesn't get involved in spiritual battle, then what good is it? Yeah, absolutely. I like where your head's at and I think Pastor Smotherman really appreciated your answer. There are some people who have been urging him to go ahead and run for office. And yeah. uh, what your thoughts quickly on that? You've run for office mm-hmm. yourself. Uh, should a pastor, and we all know that they're going to throw the book at him when it comes to you can't preach from your pulpit. That's You're right. a, a nonprofit organization. Can you speak to that for us and this possibly is not help a theocracy, us? All those things that yeah. come up. You know, I had, or I still have, a ministry, a teaching ministry. So I went through a bit of angst myself in deciding to run because I thought, God, do I have to live? But give up my ministry, and I have to hide my ministry. And then you start thinking about right. are they going to pick a part of what I've written? And ultimately, you have to say, with anything, but you know, definitely running is God calling you to run or not. And if He is, then He's going to have to worry about those things. You know, I just have to focus on what I do know, not on what I don't know. And what I do know is that I have to fight for God. You know, I have to stand up for what He believes, what God thinks, what He. Feels. And there's a scripture that tells us that if we see good, there is, if we see the good there is to be done and we don't do it, that it's sin. So then it's wow. sin if we watch evil and do nothing. You know, would Jesus watch evil and do nothing? No. So then why do we think we should? Oh, do you happen to know what uh, part of the what passage scripture? Not putting you on the spot. Yeah, I believe it's James five eighteen. Okay. Could be wrong because it's in my book. <laughs> just look it up. No, that's okay. We'll go back and look. We need to employ that uh, certainly into the Kiva. And yes, we have to speak up. And if we know about something, we don't speak up about it. I believe like that uh, it, it is sinful. Yeah. We are. Uh, I'm only on this, uh, you know, globe for so long, and I have to. If I know about something, I have to go against it, and that's what I have to do. And ultimately, it'll be all a call for us to make a sacrifice. Public service is a sacrifice. So, what are some of the lies that we believe about faith and politics? Well, we already covered one of the big ones: is that the church shouldn't be involved in politics. Okay. And I was at a Catholic church, and I heard a priest say, "I focus on teaching the gospel, not politics." Ooh. And I, I, I actually quoted—not him personally, but I quoted that in my book because it pushed my button so bad. Yeah, you were upset. I was. Okay, good. I, I, I couldn't sit in a pew. I wanted to jump you, up. You're, in, you're, you're exciting an entire base in Albuquerque right now, this afternoon, uh, by people hearing you and what you're saying. So, yeah. so continue. Thought, well, wait a minute. What is the gospel? Yeah. Is the gospel just uh, believing in Jesus and that's it? Or is the gospel just believing in him means you're following him. You're mm-hmm. one with him. You're joining with him. You're advancing his agenda on this earth. So how can you say that? fighting for righteousness or you don't even say have to say fighting but advancing righteousness is not part of the gospel it's yeah. part of the gospel absolutely this is great uh, let's talk about how we deal with our fears our frustration our hopelessness uh, during these times I mean many people feel like they can't fight back against the government I was just uh, talking with the independent uh, women uh, they had litigation they spent money they're trying to keep their their kids from being mass uh, the kid uh, one of her children one of her boys was suspended 15 days the other one was suspended nine days I mean just horrendous things and you can't help but feel like they're making you feel like you're doing the wrong thing and you're not you know you're standing up for yourself and these are not things that are required 
hard. And we certainly know all about the science and COVID and masks, and we all know about all that kind of stuff. So, you know, how, how do we deal with the frustration when we feel defeated uh, at every turn? Mm-hmm. That's an excellent question. And I address it in the book as part of this whole issue of what are the lies we believe? Because when we fear and we stress and we're, and I'm talking about myself here, when I'm upset and I'm angry and frustrated and hopeless and all the things that I feel, there's always a lie that I'm believing about myself or about God. And so I address this in the book as we, we, you know, we, we, it's easy sometimes to see the lies in the media, but we have a harder time identifying the lies that we're believing about ourselves or about God. Right. So when we're stressed, it's is like, what am I usually believing? You know, where's God in the picture? He's not in the picture. He's not with me, or I have to make it happen on my own, or he's mad at me. I'm not good enough. You know, all these things. Right. And we have to be aware of those lies. And just ask God, you know, what, why am I so uh, down? Why am I so down on myself? Why am I so stressed right now? What lie am I believing? And he wants to show us what lies we're believing because he always wants to expose lies. And he wants to heal our hearts, and, and he wants us to know that he's with us and he's not angry with us. He's, he, he desires uh, he desires us more than we could ever desire him. Well, I'm going to put you in touch with people back in Albuquerque because I think you could inspire them, and I think that people need to pursue you. public life. And I think your story, you're still you're here at CPAC. By the way, how many times have you been to CPAC? Four or five. Okay. You enjoy it? Come <laughs> yeah, in here. You must. It's fun. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's a good people that, that are here. What, what is God calling us to do in this hour? Something that you ask in the book. One, I, I, break it down into three parts. I think the first part is what I just talked about. Is he wants he wants us more than anything. He wants us more than he wants what we can do from him, for him. So he wants to reveal to us the lies we're believing so that we can have more intimacy or closer relationship with him. So that's the first thing is to start asking what lies am I believing about you or myself and then I, uh, I actually have an action plan section of the book because I want people to come away with specific things that they can do like right away or next month or a specific thing so there's so many things we can do uh, we can uh, support campaigns either with our time or our money we can text okay. or email representatives about bills that are going on in the state. Is that a form of tithing by the way, if you donate to a particular candidate who reflects and and, and you prayed upon it and God's values do you think that that could be a form of tithing taking a, a... That's a tough question because I think everyone needs to um, kind of follow what they've been taught in their church yeah, sure. and so forth. Um, to me, it's not so much. I think it's it's more of um, trusting God with your money. Mm-hmm. And that's what tithing is anyway. So in the end, it's all the same is that you're trusting God with your money when you are advancing something that's going to advance, when you're supporting something that's going to advance His will on this earth. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're supporting um, you know, a church or whether you're supporting a candidate, if, you, if it's something that, or someone or a program or a church or an organization that is going to advance God's will, you know, on this yeah. I, Oh, I want to finish it. Sure. You know, there's many things you can do. Obviously, pray is the first thing and that we can do. That and should then, go without saying. Yeah, you can't do anything right. in your life without praying. My, my kids, I have a 7 and 10-year-old. The first thing that they have to do is as important as, as their sit-ups or push-ups and making sure that they brush <laughs> their teeth and take in their vitamins. It's a spiritual battle. So we, yeah, and we have to, everything that we do for righteousness, 
this. We can't do it out of fear. We can't do it out of anger. We have to do it out of this place of intimacy with God and, and really aligning with what he thinks, what he feels, where he's going. And so if we know that, well, eventually Jesus is coming back and is going to restore the earth and uh, there's going to be righteousness ruling on the earth, well, everything we do now is building toward that. So even if we don't see the candidate win that we want, we know that we are ultimately advancing God's agenda on the earth, and that's what we want. Oh, man, that's victory right there. I Amen. love the way that that sounds. That is Amen. awesome. <laughs> Amen. Anything that is for restoration, freedom, yeah. righteousness, you know, we're doing the right thing. You know, I went through a few elections myself i ran for mayor for the city of albuquerque i ran for congressional district uh, cd1 and uh you know i i'm not just involved in media but also ran for state party chair and uh, i feel like i'm always advancing you know the cause and i'm fighting and i get attacked by even people who support me all the time actually especially by people who support us kind of tell us about your story about getting attacked by people who are quote-unquote supporters or people on your side i'm sure there's got to be you've got some interesting stories feel free to share too uh, allow this to be a little well, a little yeah, bit of catharsis. A, a couple things I want to mention is that being a Christian, I felt that people were supporting me because they wanted me to advance their Christian agenda. And it was difficult because my constituents, as I said, was 75% blue and maybe not Christian. So it was this, wait a minute, what is, going back to the, the, the founding fathers, what does a representative in, in, in Congress do? They represent their constituents. So I had to really think through, this is not God's heart to lie, to say, oh, you know, I will do this, and then once you get uh, elected, then just follow your Christian agenda. I mean, obviously you want to, um, like I said, uh, uh, advance conservative principles that, that bring life, but it's not a theocracy. So I'm not getting elected to preach. I'm getting elected to uh, meet the needs of my constituents in a way that's going to bring life. And I truly believe if you're doing it in a conservative way, you're going to bring life and it's going to be aligned with the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that I experienced is that, and I won't get any specifics, but it's not always so black and white, cut and dry, left versus right, Republican versus Democrat. There's many Republicans that are really Democrats. Uh, so you ha- can't be have your fa- can't have your faith in a party. You have to have your faith in, in obviously in God, but to know that there's going to be people that let you down, whether it's consultants or. Um, party chair not chair people but party people mm-hmm. uh, in organizations there's going just because you're on the conservative side or the Republican side it doesn't mean that everyone is going to be supportive be Right. And think like you do, be straight with you in the terms of they might be really Democrat. They might be supportive. Have you seen Democrat a lot of that controlled in opposition? York. In New York. Yeah. So, I, again, I no matter what you're doing, and this is in general in life, but in politics, you have to be doing it, I believe, for God. Because in the process, everybody's going to let you down. I mean, I had Christian consultants who lied, who were uh, unethical in their contracts. I had to get out of the contracts right away and that was shocking to me at first because I thought oh you're a Christian consultant you must follow Jesus but when it comes to policies there's something about politics or something about D.C. I love it, but it also brings up the worst in people. And I've found that even the most committed Christians, the uh, people who really seem to be have their head on straight, because of this uh, 
the, just the way that the politics is set up and the money and the need to raise so much money, it brings out the worst in people. And you have to be prepared for that and know that people are going to let you down, but God won't let you down. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. You've inspired me. Um, I hope that you inspire Steve Smotherman in some way. Um, he's, certainly he's uh, listening uh, to this broadcast. I know that he listens because I listen to him uh, talk on Sundays and Wednesdays when he does his stuff. My, my parents listen, and it's weird how what I say ends up coming out in some of his sermons, and I'm really happy That's to see great. that. Yeah, and I feel like I'm having an influence on, on that community, even though I'm not part of you know his congregation or anything. And I'm really hoping to change more people. But you've inspired me. And I, I want to say that you're uh, you're my final interview here at CPAC uh, for this 2022 and uh, possibly the most inspiring as well. So uh, you're going to keep keep up the fight and, and, and keep swinging for the fences. And but I've done, like like I said, about 18 or 19 interviews here since I've been here. And the book, folks, is called The Lies We Believe About Faith and Politics, The Way Forward. Gene Nigro. And uh, you also ran in Kansas city is that no no just manhattan just manhattan yeah, yeah so we're gonna um i think uh i'm gonna pick up this book we're gonna make sure we connect it to the right people uh back in albuquerque to help us out because we are a very blue state very blue city um our congressional district number one used to be won by republicans over and over and over again in 2008 that all stopped and you know the the entire state is awash in blue and it's yeah. it's it's awful it's terrible we are 50 50th in education, 50th in every good court uh, category, number one in every bad category. I mean, uh, we have uh, a complete hold on us uh, from the other side, and we got to do something to break that. And I hope that uh, your words certainly inspired me, but inspire other people uh, this well, afternoon. I hope so, too, and I'll pray for Friday. that as well. Uh, thank you Thanks so for much. Yeah, absolutely. Gene Nigro, thank you so much for being here. Back after a quick break to wrap the show here on AM1600 KIVABQ.FM, rockoftalk.com. The lies we believe about faith and politics, the way forward. Pick it up now. Thanks so much. This is The Rock of Talk on AM1600 KIVA Albuquerque. AM1600 KIVABQ.FM, rockoftalk.com. Eddie Aragon broadcasting from CPAC 2020, Dallas, Texas. And I'm here with Catalina Stuve. She's the director of outreach. We're going to get things uh, moving in Albuquerque, New Mexico with Moms for Liberty and momsforliberty.org. We actually have a chapter in Bernalillo County. There's a contact uh, there as well. But we're going to talk naturally about what Moms for Liberty is all about, what they've been doing uh, uh, nearly two years. Uh, in the making and uh, boy I gotta say when you guys were like sitting right in front of me right here with your booth I'm like we gotta talk because we gotta get the, the, the mom you know especially in Hispanic culture right the mom's kind of the head of the household right I think wh- whatever mom says is the way that it goes you you come from Colombia so right. yeah tell us a little bit about yourself and how you uh, made your way here to the uh, greatest country in the world hola Eddie how are you I'm excellent thanks for asking me and <laughs> yes. thanks for having me Oh, of course, it's a pleasure. And uh, yes, listen, moms are the most more influential person in any anybody yeah. so uh, we the moms can change the world but we just have to get united and uh, take action of what they are doing with our children yeah uh, 
I let know to all the moms that do not trust the, the, the government with the education of your children. Right now, the, the system is not appropriate for your children. So either you, you do a homeschooling, either you join a chapter here in New Mexico they have, uh, either you take action yourself with your children and put in the balance because they need to get the good stuff because at school, they are having indoctrination, gender ideologies, CRT, and they have been indoctrinated for more than a decade ago. I got to talk about this from a Colombian perspective first. Can you imagine if they were implementing CRT in a place, 100% Latino um, culture in Colombia? Uh, could you imagine if they were implementing CRT in Colombia? What would that look like in your estimation? Well, CRT is on not only about the race is all about division so they will always try to get divide people either rich and poor black and white okay. or Democrats versus Republicans right. so the, the main idea is to divide and get conflict and lose your friends sometimes your family and destroy the, the, the society the destroy the family the most important it's political easy to unit control the, yeah. the, the, the individual if if you are isolated so certainly this is the main reason yeah and i think uh when we start talking about this being implemented now and there's been a huge ramp up here in the united states on crt about uh, woke politics and we are now awake to their woke politics about how it works to take over our families uh influence every part of society and uh you guys are standing up against that moms for liberty that's momsforliberty.org. Tell us about uh, getting started on this, how people can get involved with their chapter and what you guys are doing on the yes, ground. Yes, at least between all this bad news, there is a good news that is everyone is waking up. And now that we know the facts and the result and we see the consequences of this indoctrination, Moms for Liberty is unifying, educated and empowered parents to defend the parental rights. Join the chapter, go to the, the meetings, become a whistleblower of this uh, system that is destroying family, is using your children, and uh, they are confusing them. Just simply get involved. Right and talk to your children. It's it's important also to support other moms that are in, in the movement uh, of supporting uh, parental rights. And if you can ask to your, to your legislators to um, uh, hold accountable every politician that is against transparency in education and to support all the bills that protect, especially the little children. Right. They are not appropriate to this age to talk about sexuality. So, recently we saw the YouTube video that was put out. You saw the drag queen uh, that where, where that happened and I think it was on, like a Miami nightclub or a Miami breakfast place. I don't know what it was, exactly. but the, you saw that was happening there. I mean, it was so disturbing and you said about confusion, about yeah. you know, sort of forcing these children to contend with things that aren't gender normal. And exactly. I got to imagine that that's just right there on the front lines for Moms for Liberty. Well, let me tell you, this is pure child abuse. 
they are not age appropriate to our children. They are not teaching any positive to our children. Right. Our children can have access to any uh, theatrical or or presentation, beautiful in art and uh, like the Nutcracker, like ballet. Right. What yeah. you are going to take your children to see a drug queen right. twerking and putting money because it's not only happening in South Florida. It's happening everywhere. everywhere yeah. It's a wave that is happening and they that's the proof. One of the local area but places here, they had a, a drag queen uh, celebration for the kids at a, at a brewery. This is nothing about inclusive and diversity. This is about control to your children. This is about putting your children in a situation that they are not going to trust you anymore. Yeah, I think the children are starting to feel that. That's why we see so much depression. That's why we see so much mental illness with suicides. young people. Yeah, suicides are certainly on the increase, but Drugs. they're trying to blame everything else but that. They want to separate, isolate the children to their family because the family, they are not judging. They are simply right. telling the truth. And what they try at the school to, be, to make believe to the children is that you parents is going to judge you. They are the bad guys. They are not very inclusive. So right. you have to trust us. I never thought about that. That's exactly what it is. Uh, turning kids uh, away from their parents. parents. And, and it's them. easily to control uh, an individual, yeah. especially at that young age. Right. Yeah. Because if it feels good or it's if it's sugar, if it's candy or whatever they can possibly shake them off, that's what they do. I'm a father of a seven and a ten year old. And uh, trust me, if it's they can take the easy way out, not do their sit ups, push ups, say their prayers, not brush their teeth, they'll do it. And, you know, that's why we have to be disciplined and implement uh, what I do, which is making sure that they're reminded of the things that are their responsibilities. I see here on your web page, you have my very favorite senator, Rand Paul, Moms for Liberty. He is right there on the front page. I love that man. He's such a good guy. He's a bright um, guy. Yeah. He's so, fighting, a great fighter, a great patriot. That's great to hear you say that. What, what other um, support have you had from elected politicians on your great movement, Moms um, for Liberty? Senator Rick Scott from uh, our state. Yeah. Uh, he is right now trying to pass uh, an agenda of protecting the American families and to renew the core values and to um, put against the, the at the level of moral standards because they have been changed. What it's used to believe bad before is now normal and that's not what it's supposed to be. But most of the politicians, especially the Republicans, are uh, always supporting us. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, of course, yeah, and many he's other great. representatives. You're so yes, yeah. we we are lucky because what we are fighting for is pure common sense. Yeah, we are not pushing any spe special agenda. We are yeah. just fighting for what is normal. It's to be free. We want to raise young patriots proud of the their country, confident, smart, proud of themselves. Yeah, uh, that embrace the sexuality that God give them and uh, to raise a family it, it, it's not about um, how can you say uh, recreational sex that they are promoting in, in at schools the, the, um, the way that you should teach your children or the way that they have to understand it's that it's not sex you have to teach love
love to your children and they are going to take that step when they feel that love and when they feel that is going to be very positive and to, cons to, to build a family because recreational sexuality is not positive for anybody not even for adults imagine for a young children yeah sure yeah no i completely understand that and we all learn uh, the hard way on that lesson or adults will learn the hard way on that lesson as well uh, having those bonds outside of marriage and the uh, problems that it creates so i think what you guys are doing is really groundbreaking there's resources there's events there's various chapters uh, but you guys are also getting lots of press a lot of people are covering you guys as well. We're doing here so today. I'm glad that we're go ahead uh, and um, uh, sort of illuminate that. There's an active chapter in Bernalillo County, and people can get involved and, and, and stay. Personally, I want to thank this mom that stands for freedom and stands for our values because we need more moms and dads and grandparents like them. And please join them, support them. They are our heroes. They are fighting for our children. Yeah. If you cannot go to the meetings, support them, make a like in their social media, um, give some ideas, become a whistleblower for this system, uh, educational system. And you can you can donate. You, you can help in so many ways, but don't stay on the corner quietly because then you become a part of the problem. Folks, we want to get you involved with Moms for Liberty. Again, it's momsforliberty.org. Everybody needs to sign up for this. Uh, a lot of your latest press uh, coming out. Governor DeSantis standing with Moms for Liberty against PayPal. Uh, tell us about that fight. I'm interested in that. Uh, last week, we got banned from Twitter because we spoke about what is happening right now in California. So you guys have been kicked off Twitter. Yes. they, they In California, it's a law that we have to respect young generation taking the decision to castrate themselves, to mutilate them, themselves, to make mastectomies at the young age of 12. And the worst part is any doctor can get sued if they do not comply with them. Oh, wow. So it's beyond uh, not only they are pushing that agenda, but it's, imagine you are a doctor, you want to save life, but you cannot deny this fantasy to a someone. And then we kick, we, we got kicked off of Twitter. And the same week, our donation were stopped in PayPal. So, so, so what happened with all the money that you were able to bring in via PayPal now that uh, you can't use that? that? That's the thing. We we count on every dollar that goes into our organization. It's a nonprofit organization. We yeah. are all volunteering for this fight. And then uh, it, it served to, to the same fight for our children. So... Um, uh, we spoke with the governor. We say, Governor, we try everything with Twitter. We send emails. We send emails to Twitter, and they are banning us everywhere. But thank God, in the state of Florida, this is uh, against the law. So the, the the governor held a press conference, and we got like the same day everything restored. Wow. 
that is really something. I mean, well, if, if that if doesn't can, tell you how far if they, they can silence gone. the president of right. the United States, they can That's silence I'm, off, I'm not on Twitter or Facebook. Yeah. I don't do any social media whatsoever. In fact, uh, the original social media is radio, and that's why we yes. do what we do here. Yes. So, uh, thank you. Thank well, you. I, it's the best way to connect. Well, you are not, doing amazing. Let, you are, uh, you know, you're doing common sense. What I say because people is wow, you're doing amazing. No, listen, this is common sense. Right. It's raising our kids the right way, and you are part of this solution. Oh, thank so you. Thank well, you. I, I'm I'm trying hard. Trust me. I want to finally. <laughs> Um, talk about some of the other uh, you're getting recognized by places like the Louisiana Department of Education uh, I think we need more educational uh, institutions to recognize who you are because that's where I think the indoctrination is taking place people in the classrooms and what they're doing uh, moms mobilize the local races for the 2022 midterm elections how are you trying to help things 90 days in with the candidates what are you doing to help uh, well, these with elections coming up is very important because parents don't want the same problem again. So they are actually going to vote for the candidate that is aligned to their values. Mm -hmm. And they are just supporting uh, transparency in education, no indoctrination. We don't want our children to get morals by a politician. Mm -hmm. You see, we, the parents, became a new political party. We want to change. Yeah. And we are going to influence this coming up election. How confident are you feeling about the elections uh, coming up for the midterms in 2022? Tell me about what you feel. I mean, a lot of people are talking about a red wave. A lot of people are talking about a lot of different things that they feel that we're going to go ahead and take over Congress. I'm not so confident because I don't like the polls. I think there's a lot of cheating at the polls. I think there's a lot of issues that we still have to deal with. But how are you How are you feeling about the way it's going to come out? That's my point. We have two issues. One, I think people awake already and they are ready for a change, a last change. So obviously with this administration, we see the disaster what is going on in our country and we're ready to get out of that. However, we are not confident about the, the fraud, about the, the, the elections. We don't trust anymore that system and we saw what is happening. So that's why there is two factors. I personally, I know for who I am going to vote. Everyone that is aligned with my values and is going to defend education. No indoctrination. Do you guys think you will put together voting cards for areas? About uh, so many times we have like, and this might be a good idea for you guys, but you know the conservative coalition puts out who they support and for what reason they give them ratings and scores and things like that. Could you also, could the Moms for America, I mean, that would, or the, excuse me, Moms for Liberty, could they put out a, uh, a voting card as to who so, they yes, support? Yes, exactly. We we endorse for school boards. That's it. Okay. Because we are very focused on about education. That's it. So pretty much, uh, well, recently also we endorsed Governor Ron DeSantis because for obviously reasons. Yeah, he's amazing. It's amazing. And we are going to support every 
person that is aligned with our values, with yeah. our common sense values. We are not against anybody. It's yeah. very inclusive, our, our organization. We even have gay parents that they have children and they do not want their children get indoctrinated or get gender ideologies at that young age. They don't want them to go what they have been through. Yeah. And I think that that's, there's a, a level of grooming. Uh, speaking of things that have been banned from parents, uh, calling anybody a groomer there you are. Uh, as well. <laughs> Catalina Subi, it's been absolutely fascinating having you here. Moms for Liberty. That's momsforliberty.org, and you can reach out directly to her at Catalina at momsforliberty.org. She's director of outreach, and of course, uh, we appreciate you being here in the keep of this you, afternoon. Thank you, Eddie. Thank Absolutely. you so much for your time. Let's keep the fight for faith, family, and freedom. We will do that. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening right here in the Kiva on AM 1600 KIVA, BQ.FM, rockoftalk.com. I'll be back Monday afternoon, 4 p.m. Have a great weekend. Thank <laughs> you.